Wendell's world in sports. Let's be great. Let's be great. An entertaining and provocative look into the world of sports and beyond. Play our game. Play hard, but stay poised. Please feel free to go over to Apple iTunes and rate and review. Your feedback is welcome. Go rock this thing, huh? Love you, man. Go get it. And now, the host of the program from the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Wendell Wallace. The year is 2020, the number, another summer get down, sound of the funky drummer, music hitting the hard cause, I know you got soul, the information age got him seeing what's really wrong with these racist days, Strong and pity the weak. Your thoughts run your life. Be careful what you think. Haiti beat France in century 17. Salute Tucson and Dessaline. And I do love France. Know what I mean? It's a system I'm talking. Nobody's agreeing. They say it's suicide when dead bodies are swinging. Cowards are hunting black men. That's what I'm seeing. How many toasters have been burnt down? And once Central Park was a thriving black town. Yo, Chuck, I'm fighting the power right now. Thanks to you, Flavor P.E. Putting it down. Putting your life on the line so I can rap now. The next generation still singing fight the power harmony unity peace love togetherness understanding education listening to each other wendell's world in sports i'm your host wendell wallace so glad that you could be with us a lot of things to get down on and discuss today in the world in the world of sports unity Harmony, fighting the power, fighting the oppression, fighting the discrimination, fighting the ignorance, fighting the bigotry, fighting the racism. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Que pasa, mi amigos? Mi amo a Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World in Sports. So glad that you could be with us. Shalom, namaste, wassalam alaikum, konnichiwa, my brothers and sisters from all over the globe. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Bonjour, bonsoir, monsieur. Mademoiselle, je m'appelle Wendell Wallace. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things going on in the world. A lot of things going on in this country. A lot of things going on in the world of sports, which we'll be talking about today before I get into what's happening in the NBA with the Eastern Conference, talking about the Brooklyn Nets, before I start talking about the NFL and Justin Fields and where he's going to be going in the NFL draft, before I talk about what's happening with Trevor Lawrence and his interview that he had with uh, Sports Illustrated, before I get into the third fight, which is now official between Conor McGregor and Dustin Poirier, before I talk about the fantastic pickup that my Georgetown Hoyas made on the transfer portal, before I get into all those things and then end the program, then end the podcast with my thoughts of the perfection, of the mastery, of the highly skilled art of the wrestling promo. Before I get into all those things and give my thoughts and opinions about what I saw on WrestleMania, before I get into all those things, I want to get into some real life talk. I want to get into some what's happening talk. I want to get into some societal talk. I want to get into what affects me, you, everybody else type of talk. I want to get into the real stuff. Not the trivial stuff, which is sports, but the real stuff, which is happening, which is affecting black and brown folks all over this country. Another instance, another situation 
where we're going to be giving our thoughts and prayers, where you should be giving your thoughts and prayers to a black person who, once again, another example of a black family who had their loved ones murdered by the biggest terrorist group in this country for black and brown people. I'm speaking about the racist, divided states of America, the selfish states of America. Another attack on a black person by a domestic terrorist known to us as police officers. I don't scare ISIS. I mean, ISIS doesn't scare me. Muslims don't scare me. What many people would consider the boogeymen or the boogie people or the scary people or the threat to our democracy or the threat to our country, the foreigners, the other folks that have perpetrated crimes against this country. Those people don't scare me. You know who scare me? White men in blue uniforms. Those are the ones who scare me. I don't care about someone who's in ISIS. I don't care about someone who's an international terrorist. I don't care about someone who is playing on the Quran. I don't care about any of that shit. All of that bullshit, all of that nonsense, all of those fear tactics that you can hear on right-wing radio and on Fox News and other jackasses who want to propagandize that bullshit. For black and brown people, that shit don't scare us. You know what scares us? Being pulled over by a police officer. That's what scares us. The white man in the blue suits or people in a blue suit known as police officers. Those are what scares. Those are my biggest fears. Those, if you go down to the black community, that's their biggest fear. And for those who know from every community, that's the biggest fear. So another attack on a black person by a domestic terrorist. The situation happened Earlier this week, ex-Minnesota police officer was arrested in connection with the shooting of Dante Wright, former Brooklyn Center Minnesota police officer Kimberly Potter, was arrested and will be charged with second-degree manslaughter in the shooting death of Dante Wright, age 20. The Brooklyn Center Police Department said the incident occurred shortly before 2 p.m. after officers initiated a stop for a traffic violation. Wright's mother, Katie Wright, said that during the stop, Her son called her to tell her he had been pulled over because an air freshener was allegedly hanging in his rearview mirror, which is an offense in Minnesota, and he was also pulled over for expired tags on the car he was driving, which, by the way, the car was his mother's. Now, okay, I've been in situations where we're talking about bullshit reasons to pull somebody over. I've driven past police officers before without wearing a seatbelt. I've driven past police officers before when I didn't have insurance. I've driven past police officers before when I've been driving with expired tags. I've I've, I've done those type of things. I haven't been pulled over. If you ask a lot of police officers, a lot of times they're not really into that nonsense. If someone's going to be pulled over, it's going to be for speeding. You get caught in a speed trap at the end of the month and the officers and the police department needs to make their quota. So they'll set up um, speed traps where they can pull somebody over if they're going 5, 10, 15 miles over the speed limit person, Dwayne, uh, excuse me, Dante Wright, was he pulled over because he was speeding? Was he pulled over because he was driving recklessly? Was he pulled over because he ran a red light? Was he pulled over because he didn't make a complete stop at a stoplight? Was he pulled over for any of those violations? No, he was pulled over because of an air freshener. This whole thing started over an air freshener. Come on, man. Come on. Now, for those who are pro-police, 
For those who are ignorant, ignorant enough to think that the police are hardly ever wrong, they have a tough job, and sometimes it should happen, blah, blah, blah. For those who want to make that argument to say, well, if it was illegal, which was a defense in Minnesota, then what was he doing with an air freshener in his car? Okay, fine. He was also pulled over for expired tags. So you know what? Yeah, could the police officer have been a nice lady, man, whatever, and let that person move on? Yeah. But was it a situation where she was he was in the wrong for getting pulled over? No, no, it wasn't. So, okay, I'll give you that. No problem. No problem. From the body camera footage played during the press conference on Monday, this past Monday, two officers, one being Potter, can be seen approaching Wright's white car. One officer then pulls the 20-year-old out of the vehicle and turns him around, attempting to handcuff him against the car as Wright tries to get back inside. Now, I'm not, I haven't been to the police academy. I haven't been through police training. I don't know what the procedures are in Minnesota. But are we going to be talking about a situation where a man was pulled over because of expired tags, a man was pulled over because of an air freshener, they ran his... They ran his uh, ID or driver's license and such and found out that, oh, this guy has a, a warrant. Nothing major. Did he stab somebody? No. Is he wanted for murder? Is he wanted for rape? Is he wanted for some type of violent felony? No. It was something, some bullshit over, an, a, you know, failing to appear, which came down to about $300. So over that, he's going to be handcuffed. Over that, he's going to be arrested, huh? Y'all don't have anything better to do. In the situation, in an atmosphere up there in Minnesota like that with the Derek Chauvin trial with George Floyd, you clowns don't have anything flipping better to do than to do this bullshit, huh? Again, is it near the end of the month? It's only April, what, 13th, 12th, whenever he was pulled over. We're not talking about trying to get your quota up. What the hell are y'all trying to do here? Okay, all right. But for those who want to sit there and say, technically, that officer was in the right to go ahead and arrest him, Again, going through the bullshit of doing that, a lot of police probably be like, look, you know what? We got to, you know, take the car or, hey, you know what? You can't drive or something like that. I mean, I've heard of numerous situations where it's kind of like, look, you know, you have a warrant out for your arrest over this, that, and the other. But you know what? You know, get that taken care of, this, that, and the other. There's, there's been ways to work things out. But you know what? Again, there was a situation where, she wasn't technically in the wrong to do this. Okay. <clears throat> but still, she takes him out, attempting to handcuff them as he tries to get back inside, as Wright tries to get back inside. As a black man in this country, do you trust the police? Hell no. Handcuffing him? Uh, we've seen numerous examples now, especially if you're talking about up there in Minnesota where what happens after the handcuffs? Uh, what, what's what's the next move after the handcuffs? Well, let's ask George Floyd. Oh, I can't. We can't ask George Floyd. He was murdered. Let's ask numerous others what happens when you are handcuffed when you're black in this country with a with a domestic terrorist, also known as the police officer. Too many instances where it's going to be ending in some type of violence, or it's going to be ending in some type of brutality. It's going to be ending in some type of attack. How weak, how pathetic must it be to be doing these tactics after you handcuff, handcuff somebody behind their back? That you have to use deadly force. That you have to use a weapon. 
that you have to apply a chokehold and all these things. How pathetic. How weak must one of these domestic terrorists be to not be able to subdue somebody when they have other folks with them who are officers and they have the person handcuffed with their hands behind their back. Weak. And you still have to go ahead and use deadly force. Weak. Pathetic. This, this unacceptable. But okay. So, Wright tried to get back inside the car after trying to be handcuffed. There's a scuffle. And during the struggle, now, why, why is this woman, if she's having a struggle with this guy, where are the other officers? Where are those to help her in trying to subdue this guy without the use of a deadly force, without any type of chokeholds, without any type of a deadly uh, attack on this person? If this woman is having trouble with this guy, what are the other two guys doing? Or what's the other guy doing? So during the struggle, Potter pulls out the gun and shoots right as he's sitting in the driver's seat. The officer can be heard yelling, Taser! Taser! During the footage before saying, holy shit, I shot him. So you have the guy's license. You have the guy's um, uh, plates, the make of the car, the make of the vehicle. So in a situation which was pulled over, which all started because of an air freshener, an expired license, you're going to try to tell me in a situation like this, instead of saying, you know what, you can drive off, but guess what, when you get home, we're going to be there to arrest your ass, or guess what? We're going to mail you that uh, fine, or we're going to do this, that, and the other. There's other ways to do these things. You really have to pull out a taser on a traffic stop? When the man, uh, Dante Wright, wasn't carrying a weapon, wasn't carrying a gun? And by the looks of Dante Wright, this guy wasn't 6'8", 285 pounds of pure muscle. This wasn't a professional MMA fighter. This guy wasn't imposing physically. You had to pull out your taser? I'm sorry, you had to think about pulling out your taser? Let the guy go and then edit your... Let me tell you something, man. Black folks aren't going to sit there and say bad, bad, boo-boo to the police department if it's like, you know what? He was... There was a warrant out for his arrest. We pulled him over. He was driving with expired tags. We tried to go ahead and to uh, initiate some type of you know, arrest or whatever, but he was like, no, I'm not having it. So he got back in his car and he drove away. So we were like, okay, God, cool. We've got your address. We've got your information. We can kind of settle this later. We can kind of deal with this later. You ain't going nowhere. You ain't running nowhere. I mean, this is not going to be a situation where you're going to be listed on the FBI's top 10. I mean, you're not a murderer. You're not a rapist. You're not a threat to society. You're not a danger to society. You're not a flight risk. None of those things are going to be happening. So why are we pulling out a taser on something like this? Let the man go and then add on charges to have him arrested later on. Dante Wright was only digging a deeper hole by him not uh, dealing with the police. But that doesn't mean he should be tased. That doesn't mean he needs to be shot. That doesn't mean he needs to be murdered. And what many experts are saying is that when he was in the car... Why the hell are you going to go ahead and try to tase him? Because even if you did tase him, when you do tase somebody, and thank God I've never been tased, but when you do tase somebody, it creates an involuntary action within the body. So if Dante Wright was in the car and the motor was on and the brake was off 
or he had the car and drive or whatever, if you go ahead and tase this guy as he's trying to leave, heaven's sakes alive, he doesn't have any control of his body. So he could have done something reckless. Well, he could have, uh, that, 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 that tase, him getting tased, could have caused him to sped uncontrollably into traffic, and maybe an innocent person would have gotten hurt. Or maybe a bystander would have gotten hurt. Or maybe there were people who weren't in cars who would have gotten hit because of the involuntary movement of the reaction of being tased by Wright. So what are we doing here? Where are we going here? What is the thought process here? Why do we need to go ahead and do that? And again, a situation where you thought you pulled out a taser, but instead it was a gun? You're a veteran of 26 years on the force, training officers, and you don't know the difference between a taser and a gun? What are we talking about here? Who are we hiring? What kind of training are you getting? What world are we living in when we're dealing with people like this? What world are we living in when these are people are to be are supposed to protect us? 26-year veteran, training officer in some instances, and she can't tell the difference between a gun and a taser? She's in that much of a panic? She's in that much of discomfort or being disturbed in terms of uh in terms of not keeping her wits to pull out a gun instead of a taser thinking it was a taser feels different looks different different color could you even look before you fire what in the world is going on could you think before you do some act like this <sighs> good lord have mercy well the end FL players, or the NBA, the the NBA, the Major League Baseball, MLB, and the NFL, or, you know, MLB and NHL, excuse me, canceled the scheduled games, and you had NFL players such as Marcus Lattimore, Doug Baldwin, and former NFL players like Torrey Smith expressing their feelings of sadness and and disbelief on on Twitter, and um, before we hear right-wing jackasses talk about shut up and catch a football, shut up and throw a football, shut up and tackle somebody, shut up and read the defense, shut up and just be happy and be content that you're making millions upon millions of dollars, shut up and just be happy and content and thankful that you're playing a child's game and not getting a real job. Before the ignorance, before the narrow-minded, and before the bigoted and the privileged and the ridiculous folks come out and start making that type of uh, comment, First of all, shut the fuck up. We really don't need you. But for those who might think that, well, you know, someone like a Doug Baldwin really doesn't know what he's talking about. Doug Baldwin's father was a police officer for 35 years. So this is not a guy where the ignorant and the narrow-minded and the foolish think that all jumping on the bandwagon of, uh, you know, another woke matter for the far left, blah, 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 doesn't know what he's talking about. He needs to shut up and catch more passes from Russell Wilson or wherever he's going to be playing. No, no. That's not a situation like that at all. And even if it was, what's the big fucking deal? What makes Marcus Lattimore, what makes Doug Baldwin, what makes LeBron James, what makes any athlete uh, uh, not have the ability to go ahead and give their thoughts and feelings, whether it's on Twitter, whether it's on Facebook, whether it's in front of a camera, whether it's on ESPN, whether it's on Fox Sports, whether it's on ABC after a game, whether it's on TikTok, whether it's on Instagram, any social media platform, what makes them, what makes them uh, uh, not able to go ahead and do that, but yet you can? 
You can go ahead and do all those things. You can go ahead and go on Facebook and go on Instagram and go on um, Twitter and go all the, do all those things. And you can tell these guys to shut up. You can tell these guys that no one cares. And you can go ahead and tell these guys that you should be happy that you're being able to uh, play these sports and make millions of dollars. You should be able to go ahead and do all those things, right? But those other athletes who you are insulting should not have the ability to express their opinions. You can express your opinions about your thoughts and feelings about the situations, but because of LeBron James or Kevin Durant or Colin Kaepernick or uh, Bruce Campbell or any of these other guys, because they're making millions upon millions of dollars, they are ineligible. They are irrelevant. They're not qualified to uh, give their thoughts and opinions. For those who are feeling that way, what the fuck do you do? What the hell have you been doing? What's your background? What's your resume? What's your accomplishments to be giving your thoughts and opinions that we should be paying example? We should be giving, um, we should be giving respect to the words that you say. What, what, what's your resume? What's your pedigree? What have you done? How many people have you helped? What neighborhood are you from? Who have you associated with? Where have you gone? And what have you done in your life? to uh, navigate where you can come up with these types of uh, anti-LeBron sentiments or disagree with a Kevin Durant or disagree with a, uh, with a uh, I don't know, with any athlete that there is out there. What qualifies you to say something but doesn't qualify LeBron James to say something? Give me a fucking break. Wendell's World of Sports, speaking about the world today, so glad that you could be with us. Speaking about them, I'm... You know what? I'm angry, of course, that this happened, but you, you, I get past the angry stage. It's just, I don't know, man. I don't know. I don't ever want to get to the point where it's just like, well, another black guy is getting killed by the police or another black person is civil rights is being violated by the police. I, I saw this. Breaks my fucking heart. Breaks my heart. Breaks my heart. I saw a video yesterday, this was from June of 2020, a white woman out in uh, Colorado, Loveland, Colorado, or somewhere near Denver, Colorado, 73 years old. She suffers from dementia. So she took something from Walmart, I think it was the total being $14. And because of her dementia, she didn't realize that she didn't pay. So the Walmart employee calls the Loveland police. So it's all cut on body camera. Breaks my fucking heart, man. This breaks my goddamn heart. So here's this woman, this poor woman, 73 years old, suffering from dementia. We all know somebody who has suffered from dementia. Some of us intimately know what it's like to deal with someone who has dementia or Alzheimer's. So this woman is walking down the street or walking down the side of the road. I mean, how dangerous is that, right? She's walking down a major uh, road. This woman had dementia. She's 73 years old, and she's picking wildflowers or something like that. So the police, or this police officer, I shouldn't even call him this police officer, this, this, this punk, this piece of shit, this low-life scumbag, this piece of shit motherfucker who, I don't know how this guy even has a job. So this domestic terrorist comes out of the police officer, comes out of the car because he was saying, you know, ma'am, please stop, please stop, ma'am, please stop. 
and because of her dementia, she, she's 73 years old, and because of her dementia, she doesn't stop because she's like, I'm going home, I'm going home. In her mind, she's like, I'm going home, this, that, and the other. So the officer gets out of the fucking car and and and, and um, wrestles with this woman. 73 years old. 73 years old woman with dementia. This guy is wrestling with her. And because of that, her arm was broken. Her shoulder was uh, dislocated. 73 years old with dementia. Now, I guess her family members or something are um, suing the police department. And goddamn, they should fucking, they should take every fucking penny and nickel from that city and from that the police police department and from that guy. Take his fucking pension. Take everything that motherfucker's made. Take away his wife's whatever. Take away his child. If he has children, take away his, their, 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 their uh, schooling fund or whatever, their college fund. Take all of that shit away. You watch that video. Go ahead. It's on, um, go ahead and Google it. No, Google, you know, police officer, dementia, Loveland, or just, it's very easy to find. Watch that video. And A, tell me that you didn't cry or get really emotional or teary-eyed when you saw that. Because that poor woman who got attacked by that domestic terrorist, we all know someone like that woman. We all have a family member like that woman. That poor woman, 73 years old, suffering from dementia. Broke my fucking heart. And this officer is going to treat her like a fucking common fucking criminal that just fucking killed a couple of kids. Unbelievable. Unfucking believable. So it's just it just it just breaks my just breaks my heart. So it's and, and the woman was white. I guess if she was black, she would have been dead by now. I guess he wouldn't have done all that shit. Probably would have what put her in a chokehold? 73 years old, what, what would you have done? You domestic terrorist, what would you have done? Shot her? Put your knee on her neck? And then what would have been the excuses? Huh? What would have been the excuses? Hey, well, you know, police is a tough job. You know, right? Might have been having a bad day. We don't know what part of town it was. Well, you know, how did he know that she had dementia? Well, you know, she should have listened when he said something. I mean, what, what are we going to be talking about here? What are we going to be talking about, Sean Hannity? How are we going to explain this, Laura Ingram? What are we going to do? How are we going to uh, shoo this away, Tucker Carlson? How are we going to blame this on BLM or the, or the far left? So that's what we deal with. That's what we deal with in this country. For those who don't live in this country, that's what we deal with as far as the peace officers are concerned. They're, they're peace, all right. Yeah, they're, they're peace. They're peace of, you know what I'm talking about. So this this is just got me again, just really, really angry, really angry. So um, she's uh, she's gonna go to trial, I guess. I don't know. As I mentioned before, Kimberly Potter is a twenty six year old, twenty six year old. She's forty eight years old. She's a twenty six year department veteran. She was taken into custody by agents of the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension at his office in nearby St. Paul. And according to jail records, she was jailed on a charge of second-degree manslaughter, but released hours later after posting a $100,000 bond. I, I don't know what to think about this. I, I really don't. I don't. I don't know if she was, I don't know what her background is. I don't know in terms of, has she done something similar to this before? Maybe not in terms of, oops, I meant to have pulled out a taser, but I pulled a gun. My bad. 
But, I mean, has she been cited for any infractions or anything like that? What's the word as far as her, the, the community that she works in? Has, this, has she been hostile? Has she interacted with anybody from the community where she patrols, where you might have someone of color, might have someone of low financial uh, background to say, yeah, you know, I can see her doing some shit like this. I don't know. I have no idea. Was she looking around for a black man to shoot? And so she saw somebody and was like, ah, goody. Let me see how I can get away with this. Oh, I got an idea. I'll say instead of pulling out my taser, I pulled out my gun by mistake. That's an idea. I'm not I'm not saying that she did it on purpose. I have no idea. I'm not going to accuse her of that. I have no idea. Second degree murder, I have no idea. Manslaughter, I don't, I don't know. I have no idea. I need a little bit more evidence before I start making a more concrete uh, opinion about what happened. But this shit always seems to be happening with black folks. Always seems to be happening with black folks. And I'm quite sure that you can dig up a situation where this happened to uh, someone who's white. I'm quite sure. But more times than not, by a wide margin, this shit happens to black folks. So I don't know. So I, I, I again, I, I, I don't know exactly what's going to happen. I'm quite sure if she does go to trial that um, they'll be using the same playbook to get her off as they use uh, for many of these cases, especially when it involves a cop and especially when the call involves a white person killing a black person. What's going to happen? The same shit. What they're going to have? What they're going to do? What they're going to wait till the fervor and the spotlight and the attention go away from this case, which is not going to take long because in this country, a domestic terrorist known as a police officer violating the rights of the poor and the black or killing someone that's poor and black, that's that pretty, that pretty much happens on a regular basis. So before something like this happens again or before, um, you know, the, the, the chances of the police murdering another black person for Minnesota, they're not going to have to wait long. I'm quite sure it's going to happen somewhere, whether it be down south, whether it be up north, whether it be in a Democratic city or a Democratic state, or whether it's going to be a Republican district or a Republican county or whatever. We know something like this is going to happen. So for the defense team, oh, that's being paid for by the uh, Minnesota Police Department, right? So... Her, their defense is going to delay, going to delay, going to delay until it's out of her conscience. Then what they're going to try to do is move the trial to a more police-friendly county because, after all, we don't want to prejudice the, you know, prejudice the jurors. So they're going to go ahead and do that. So what they're going to do is they're going. Their defense is going to be this is a tragic mistake. Mistake. You know, as much as this is terrible and this is horrible, Dante Wright did make some decisions. That forced this situation to happen. I mean, he should not have been driving with an expired license plate. It is a situation where if you are driving with an air freshener, the possibility is that you could be uh, pulled over because of that. So this wasn't an unwanted or this wasn't an unwarranted decision to be pulled over. So she can't be in violation or she can't be accused of that. He should have not gotten back in the car because after all, there wasn't a warrant for his arrest. So this was a person who basically was, you know, um, uh, arrest eligible. So he never should have fought. He never should have done those type of things. So what they're going to do, as always, when it comes to the police violating the civil rights of black folks, murdering black folks, they're going to paint the victim 
as the as the uh, as the bad guy. Just like women who are raped, you know, they're going to they're going to accuse the female of well, you know, I'm not saying that she deserved it, but you know, if you saw the dress that she was wearing, if you saw the way her hair was done, if you saw the way that you were she was flirting with him, if you saw the way that she was walking, if you've known the history of this woman before, and this is not the first time that you know she's made herself available to men, and you know she has been pretty promiscuous and you know all of these type of things. So the fact that she was raped, I'm not saying that it was. Uh, I'm not saying that it was uh, warranted or anything, but, I mean, my client can't be fully blamed because of this, because, I mean, after all, he did take her to dinner, and he didn't take her to uh, some fast food joint either. He took her to a five-star restaurant. She came in dressed to the nines. She was smiling. She was giving hints the entire time. I mean, they started kissing a little bit after the dinner was over. So, I mean, you know, hey... What the hell? I mean, what do you expect with this guy? If you're going to be going out with this guy and you're going to be dressed up and you're going to be wearing this type of perfume and, you know, this is the third time they've been out and the two times before they haven't done anything. So, I mean, what's going on? Blah, blah, blah. So basically what they're going to try to do is sneer the person who was raped. So with these situations regarding police murdering and violating the civil rights of poor black folks, who most of the times can't get themselves an OJ defense, most of the times can't get themselves a dream team, who most of the time can't buy themselves a defense lawyer or can't buy themselves, you know, a, a, a situation where they can strengthen their argument. It's up to the jury and it's up to uh, these folks to make the decision. And if you have a jury full of ignorant folks, and for instance, if you're going to be having this trial in a county that's police-friendly, then the jurors, for the most part, especially when you're dealing with a black man who was being who was being violated by the police, and they bring in the fact that he was wanted, bring the fact that he's black, being the fact that he was in a bad neighborhood, being the fact that he looked at a mean, being the fact that he resisted, being the fact that he was doing all of these things, a county and a jury that is leaning toward police are going to take a look at that and say, yeah, 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 understood, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oops, yeah, you're right. You know what? Policing is a stressful job. You know what? They were in a neighborhood where, you know, crime and these type of things happened. So, tragic mistake, horrible mistake, but we're going to maybe give her a slap on the wrist. We're going to maybe give her time served. We're maybe going to have her give probation. After all, she did resign. So she's no longer a policeman. Now, 26 years, I'm quite sure she still gets her pension, but she still resigned, this, that, and the other. So I'm not looking for, uh, I'm not looking for any real justice. I'm not looking for any real justice. I mean, I want real justice when it comes to the George Floyd trial, the Derek Chauvin trial, but I know I'm not going to get it. I know basically that that's not going to happen. So it's, uh, it's disappointing and it sucks, but, uh, it is what it is. But, you know, it's th that's the way it is. That's the way it goes. And as I mentioned before, we got to keep moving. We got to keep grooving. And we got to keep doing what we need to be doing to make things right. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So I don't know. I don't know where we go from here. I don't know exactly what we do. I don't know exactly what the solution is. I don't know. 
I have no idea. It's not. It, I think we should be focusing less on, man, I can't believe it. What are we going to do to have police officers, the domestic terrorists, stop killing us, stop violating our rights? I, I, I think that those things are going to happen in our community, unfortunately. What we need to be focusing on, what we need to be thinking about, what we need to be concentrating on is real justice, incredible justice, harsh justice for these people who do this. What we need to do is continue the understanding for people in terms of who think that the police can do no wrong, that obviously if the guy wasn't wearing a hoodie, if the guy wasn't uh, listening or doing anything, until we get past this nonsense of where, well, there had to be a reason why this police officer did this to this black person. It's not because he's a bad person. It's not because this police officer was in the wrong. It's not because this police officer is a bigot. It's not because this police officer is a racist. Before we can get the masses of folks from each of the communities who are of this thinking, before we can get them to realize that, oh yeah, you know what? This stuff does happen. Not all the time, but enough times to where it's a real problem. So no matter where the trial happens of someone, as far as a domestic terrorist, a police officer murdering or uh, committing a crime against black folks, against poor folks, against brown folks, no matter what community, no matter what jurisdiction, no matter what uh, portion or region of the country this happens until we get the vast amount of people to realize that police officers, yes, they do commit crimes against black people. Yes, they do murder black people because of the color of their skin, because they're not qualified, because they're not educated enough, because all of these things happen. Until we get the masses of other folks who understand what we go through, this type of bullshit is going to be happening time and time and time and time again. So what we need to do, as far as people are up here yelling and screaming about defunding the police, it ain't about defunding the police. You know what? The police is going to get defunded because guess what? All of these wrongful death suits that happen when these police officers commit these crimes against black folks and then the county and then the state have to be paying out millions upon millions of dollars of uh, uh, dollars to these folks. Guess what? Something is going to get defunded after a while. So until a police officer starts starts getting some serious, some serious time, some serious justice, before we start saying, you know what, you know how it is, or you know how the police, you know what the attitude is when a civilian kills a police officer, you know how gung-ho the police are to find that perpetrator or to find that, find that criminal, you know the severity of a crime that's been committed against a police officer is much greater than if a uh, civilian did it against another civilian only because that's one of the protections that they feel that a police officer has to have if they're supposed to be going out and protecting the community that there needs to be harsher penalties for those who commit acts of violence who commit violent felonies or commit any type of crimes against uh, police officers well we need to have the same damn thing in terms of severity of the punishment for a police officer who commits a crime, who commits a violent crime, who commits a serious crime, who commits a felony against someone who is a law-abiding citizen. 
So we need to protect the civilians from the police just as much as we need to have protection for the police against the civilians who are looking to do harm. Police are being protected from the criminals in terms of they commit a crime, they are punished more harshly than they would if this criminal committed a crime against a civilian. Well, guess what? The police officer who commits a crime against a civilian, they need to be dealt with just as severely as if it was the other way around. Then you might start seeing police officers think twice before, oops, I pulled out a gun and shot when I wanted to say it was a taser. Maybe it was a situation where, you know what, before this thing escalates where there might be violence involved and I might be put in jail for 25, 30 years or prison for 25 and 30 years and not in, and not in, um, and, and put in general population with a lot of the other inmates that I uh, put in the uh, prison, before I go down that route, maybe we should handle this a better way. Maybe we should handle this a more peaceful way. Maybe we should handle this to where it's like, okay, you know what, cool. You want to go ahead and continue to drive off when I told you to stop? Okay, fine. Guess what? You ain't getting away with it. Sooner or later, we're going to get your ass down. If you want to uh, bring up a level one situation to a level three, I ain't going there. But you know what? We're going to get you. We're going to get you. And I don't mean we're going to get you in terms of committing some type of felony, committing some type of act, but you're still going to pay for the violation. You're still going to pay for the infraction. You're still going to be doing that. But a situation where, I mean, he gets killed over an initial traffic stop because of expired tags, expired tags in an air freshener, come on. Come on, man. What are we doing? What are we doing? Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. And let me end this segment on this so I can start talking about sports. You know, we also speak about the situation where, you know, it's just a couple of bad apples or just a couple of bad actors. And you're right. You know, not not every police department, just like not every school district, not every sales association, not, not every... Uh, any other business, nothing's going to be 100% where everybody's going to be great and wonderful and fantastic. No matter what you do, there's always going to be bad apples. No matter what you do, there's always going to be people who slip through the cracks in terms of not uh, of having the job that they're not qualified for. That, that's always going to be the case. I would love to have a situation where every police officer is a peace officer and they're there to, to, to uh, protect the community. I, I wish that was the case. But unfortunately, there's no law, there's no educating, there's no uh, intervention, there's nothing that we can do to make that happen. That is completely unrealistic. That's like saying, what can we do to end racism? What can we do to end crime? What can we do to end homelessness? What can we do to uh, end greed? None of those things are going to be happening. So to try to have a solution to where every the police department is going to have every single peace officer be a peace officer that's not going to happen but here's what we can do to start things off we can go ahead and start having the majority of those who do want to be peace officers who do want to help out the community who do want to have their uh, job done correctly for those who really uh want to protect and serve stop stop uh um, stop making up or stop um, uh, making excuses for those who do. The thin blue wall or some of that nonsense, stop with that. 
Stop with that nonsense. We need everybody to go ahead and do the right thing. From the police officers to the communities, all that stuff needs to go in terms in the right direction. Because uh, if it doesn't, there's going to be more instances like this. And we're just going to continue to go down this path. So, Dante Wright, my thoughts and prayers are with you, bro. And for the family, my thoughts and prayers are with you. And it's just another senseless episode (laughs) as we try to move forward. Love, peace, unity, harmony, understanding. Why can't the community and the police departments get together? I know they have, but why can't they have a more unified understanding about what's going on, about what's happening? Because I tell you, man, peace officers are the biggest bunch of bitches that you'll ever see, man. Some of these guys, they just swear that they, they just, that they're just shit that just doesn't stink. And they'll never listen to criticism, and they'll always have excuses, and they'll always have their guard up, and they'll always be defensive, and they'll always have an excuse for what happens, or at the very least, they'll always say, yeah, you know what, you guys are just focusing, and you're just highlighting on a couple of instances, and overlooking all of the great stuff that we do for the community. So, you'll, you'll have some police officers who will never come around, who will never get it, who will never want to work with the community. But somehow, some way, man, the community and the uh, police, man, we need to get together. We need to have a talk, a talk, a frank talk, a talk of realness. And we need to find some answers to uh, some of these problems. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Thank you very much for allowing me the time to speak about what happened involving the attack or the mistake, tragic mistake, whatever way you want to put it, the murder of Dante up there in Minnesota. Thoughts and prayers, of course, go with the Wright family. And let's hope that somehow, some way, true justice, real justice, is served in that regard. So thank you very much for getting that off my chest. In terms of my thoughts and feelings about it, I feel much, much better. So now it is time that we can transition, talk about what's happening in the world of sports. Thank you very much. Um, Just want to hit on some UFC UFC news. The third fight between Conor McGregor and Dustin Poirier is set. It's done. July 10th, USC 264 in Las Vegas at the T-Mobile Arena. Yeah, sorry. And Dana White announced that it's going to be full capacity. 
Woohoo! The UFC president Dana White said in a tweeted video, I'm so happy to be finally able to say that Vegas is back. The summer Las Vegas is back open for business. And on July 10th, UFC 264 will be at the T-Mobile Arena in Las Vegas at 100% capacity. Ladies and gentlemen, that's 20,000 fans. White's tweet came a day after Nevada Governor Steve Sisolak announced a goal to remove social distancing restrictions by uh, the summer and reach 100% capacity across the state effective June 1st. So, here we go, man. It's social distancing restrictions by May 1st. It's going to be up the window with 100% capacity across the state effective June 1st. And the statewide masks mandate will still be implied. will still be there. So, all right. That's some progress. That's some progress, I guess. I hope so. Hey, man. Sorry about Yoli here. But hey, man, you know, it was a uh, touch and go moving forward because there was a whole mix-up between Poirier and McGregor in terms of after the second fight that McGregor said that he was going to donate a six-figure uh, donation to Poirier's foundation. And Poirier was talking about, hey, man, what's going on? What's happening? I tried to uh, get in touch with you guys, and I haven't received the donation yet and what's going on. So I think I'm going to I'm going to um, bring out this dirty laundry to the public, and McGregor was not down with that. He was not cool with that. He was like, hey, man, I need to find out a little bit more about this foundation before I write a half a million dollar check or somewhere around there. So I need a little bit more information. So it was a situation where the Poirier had to take it to the to the public. Maybe he was at the point where it was like, look, man, if I don't get something from you guys, I'm going to have to shame you out of it. So I don't know. I have no idea. don't know who's the bad guy. Don't know who's the good guy in this situation, but I'm quite sure those two gentlemen will work work it out. And the most important thing is the fact that uh, we're going to have a trilogy between Poirier and McGregor. Because Poirier doesn't have the following, I would say cult following, as the Diaz brothers don't think it's going to get to that level. Don't think it's going to get to that hype or excitement. And also, we're speaking about another time and place not just uh, with UFC, UFC itself, but also with McGregor. So I don't think it's going to be the hype, the hoopla, the enthusiasm, the passion, the eyeballs that's going to be focused on the third, this trilogy between Poirier and McGregor. But it should be uh, it should be pretty entertaining leading up to the fight itself. we got a couple of months to uh, plug this, so I'm quite sure McGregor is going to do a thing to uh, get it going. In fact, what he said to ESPN's Ariel Hawani on Wednesday, this past Wednesday. He said, I signed bout agreement this morning. I'm going to rip his game a new asshole July 10th. The Mac is back in Sin City. Full house. I will say this, <clears throat> especially <clears throat> since this is going to be at 100% capacity, wherever McGregor fights, especially if we're speaking about a arena and not a stadium that, you know, he can do... 15, 20,000, 12,000, that's no problem. So I'm expecting, even without the folks from Ireland coming over to uh, watch this fight, to uh, bring their enthusiasm and to bring their culture over to Las Vegas for the weekend, even without the normal attendance from those folks to come on across the pond and um, cheer on McGregor. Still think that, uh, still think that this is going to be something hype, but I still think this is going to be a situation where it's going to be a full house. So... With saying all that, I will say this. July 10th, UFC 264. This is going to be the most important fight so far in Conor McGregor's MMA career. 
and in the UFC. It's going to be more important than the Jose Aldo fight. It's going to be important, more important than the uh, Nick Diaz uh, third fight. It's going to be on the second fight, whatever. It's going to be more important than um, any other fight that he's had. You know, the Eddie Alvarez fights. This is the most important fight in Conor McGregor's career in the UFC. Because I've said it before, and I say it again, and I said it the the week after he won the uh, lightweight title from Eddie Alvarez at UFC 205, which made him the first simultaneous champ in UFC history. I said, you know what, man? I was talking to my man, Armando Vasquez. I said, you know what? Right here, right now, mark it down. November 12th, 2016, Conor McGregor will never be as high. Conor McGregor will never be as popular. Conor McGregor will never be as famous. Conor McGregor, as far as an MMA fighter and as far as the accomplishments are concerned, this is it. This is the top of the mountain. This is as far as he'll go. This is how high that Conor McGregor will reach right here. This is it. And that was, again, almost five years ago. November 12, 2016 at 205, UFC 205. That night, since that fight, he's fallen in the octagon three times. Three times in almost five years. And he's lost twice. And he beat an over-the-hill, washed-up Donald Cerrone. I'm sorry, Cowboy, but, I mean, let's let's call it like it is. So after that farce of a boxing match, that payday... You know, when you con the suckers into uh, doing with that, the McGregor-Floyd Mayweather Jr. fight where he made a boatload of money, good for him, good for Floyd. But um, ever since that uh, fight at UFC 205, what has he done? What has he done to uh, live up to the myth, to live up to the uh, type of UFC fighter that he was that night? Again, three years, he's fought, that's five years, he's fought, fought three times. He's lost two two of them after coming back from boxing Floyd Mayweather Jr. He fought for the light heavyweight championship against Khabib Nurmagomedov. That was in October of 2018, and he was submitted in the fourth round. I was happy watching that fight. Then, you know, after that, he retired, took some time off, got into legal trouble. He had to deal with a brawl. He had to deal with some other things, sold his alcohol, and then came back almost two years later on January 18th 2020 to fight Donald Cerrone at UFC 246, as I mentioned before, Cerrone, way past his prime, Cerrone, only in name only, Cerrone getting in there was the perfect type of opponent for McGregor to come back on, McGregor looked great, McGregor looked fantastic, 40 seconds, first round, head kick strikes, he was done, Cerrone couldn't live up to the hype, he couldn't live up to the build-up, he couldn't live up to um, everything that was put down in the comeback of Conor McGregor, so, you know, he froze, he choked, sorry, Cowboy, I mean, that's the way it was, so, 40 seconds in, McGregor won, everybody's losing their mind, right, every, ooh, the Cowboy, you know, Conor's back, Conor's back, this is unbelievable, he's looked better than ever, now the lightweights and the welterweights and the middleweights and everybody else, you better watch out, and, you know, the UFC market and the machine started going and started turning and started coming up with ideas, and, oh my goodness, the new Conor McGregor, he's no longer crude, he's no longer rude, he's no longer brash, he's no longer cocky, he's no longer arrogant, he's no longer disrespectful, he's the new Conor McGregor, he's the mature Conor McGregor, he's the grown-up Conor McGregor, McGregor. He's the husband, Conor McGregor. He's the father, Conor McGregor. This is a new McGregor that we're seeing right now, and this one is better than ever. He's more, um, you know, he's more versatile. He's learned. He's grown. And all this nonsense, right? All of this coming off again, fighting Donald Cerrone. So it was like, all right, let's see what we can do now. Let's see where we can go. 
So in, with all of that nonsense, he's passed this test. He's done all this other nonsense. He, there was an accusation of him with a sexual assault charge, which recently um, uh, found out that he wasn't uh, guilty of. But, you know, he had to deal with a couple of other legal issues outside of the octagon. And then because of COVID, took another year off and then came back again to fight Dustin Poirier at UFC 257 this past January. And uh, the fight was stopped in the second round because Poirier late kicks got to him and then the punches got to him and then he was flat on his back and basically knocked his ass out. So that's this is the setup. This is the storyline. What are we getting here with Conor McGregor? Now, when Conor McGregor, before, when he beat Donald Cerrone and he came in and he was more humble and he was more focused and he was more mature and the braggadocio, arrogant self wasn't there. Everybody after the fight was saying, was saying how this has been a improvement now we've seen that Conor McGregor now is looking, is going, is going down the avenue of being a better fighter than ever because of the loud, boisterous, uh, braggadocio nonsense and the bullshit and the stuff that uh, he was a part of and that he was known for, part of his shtick, part of his uh, routine, part of his uh, gimmick, part of his uh, brand, shall we say, to get him noticed, to get him out there, to make him money, for him to become a public figure, to him, for him to become someone of interest outside of just the mixed martial arts community and paid off very well, made him a icon, made him a national hero, made him a sports hero, not just in Ireland, but all over the globe. That was kind of put on the back burner. And with Cerrone, we saw him more mature and more quiet and more docile, but yet more uh, well-rounded fighter in Conor McGregor, aging like fine wine, the the knowledge, the experience of those fights. Maybe he took a little something from that fight with Floyd Mayweather, put it in his toolbox to step back inside the octagon. Whatever it is, boy, against Donald Cerrone, it was pandemonium, it was great, it was wonderful, and like I said, the new Conor McGregor is going to be better than ever. Then, when the new Conor McGregor shows up for a fight against a real lightweight contender against a real mixed martial arts contender against a guy who's still in this prime a really good fighter in Dustin Poirier who if you check might not be as braggadocious might not be as charismatic might not have that it factor that Conor McGregor had has but if you take a look at his resume of fights and fights that he's won and people that he fought it's just as impressive as Conor McGregor so he's not getting in the ring with Dustin with um Donald Cerrone when he stepped into the octagon this past January at UFC 257. So when he got knocked out, it was like, oh my goodness gracious. Now, we see, leading up to this fight in July, the fact that they've had this little beef, Poirier and <clears throat> McGregor, and McGregor got back in there, and now we start seeing some of the old Conor McGregor come back. He's loud, he's boisterous, I'm going to knock this clown out. This motherfucker can't do shit to me. <clears throat> All of this nonsense now... It's all right. Now we've got the new Connor. See, when he beat Donald Cerrone, when he was mature and aged and all this type of stuff, that was great. When he lost to Dustin Poirier, no, 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 I'm sorry, that's bad. What is it, man? I tell you one thing. I don't want to see Conor McGregor go back to 2013, 2014, 2015. That's gone. The 25-year-old Conor McGregor, the 26-year-old Conor McGregor, that's gone. That guy isn't walking through the T-Mobile Arena doors on in July of... 2021 to fight Dustin Poirier. That man is gone. That aura is gone. That fighter is gone. That gimmick is gone. He can try to rep replicate it, but 
the sequels are hardly ever a better than the original. So Conor McGregor, I want to see what he's got. I'm not, I'm not interested in his trash talk. I'm not interested in his mic work. I'm not interested in all that kind of bullshit. What does he have? His last three fights, almost five years, he's one and two, and he's been stopped and he's been knocked out. What does he have left? Because I'm telling you something right now. My question for McGregor is, how much does he want it? How much does he want to be great again? I say that the Conor McGregor, before he became a household name, the Conor McGregor, before he defeated Eddie Alvarez five years ago, that Conor McGregor is now coming back. You know why? Because that Conor McGregor didn't have $120 million sitting in the bank. That Conor McGregor didn't have the gravitas. That Conor McGregor didn't have the avenues, the financial avenues to go to where he can make a lot of money. He wasn't a father. He wasn't a husband at that time. It was Conor McGregor, his dream of capturing the world, seizing the world, controlling the world. The world is mine. Twism. That was the younger Conor McGregor. Now we see an older Conor McGregor. Now it's just not about him anymore. Now it's dealing with fatherhood. He's dealing with him being a husband. It's him dealing with uh, him being a, a boss. It's him being a brand. It's him dealing with all of those things. 32 years old. And I'm telling you something, man. We've seen it before. When you start losing, no matter how great you are as a mixed martial artist, the moment that you lose, that star, it falls and it falls quickly. Real quickly. You can go from being one of the best fighters in the world and then 12 months later, your career could be at a crossroads with just one loss. Now, if you're someone like Conor McGregor, who is such a financial boom for the UFC, they're going to keep giving him opportunities and opportunities. But from BJ Penn to Frankie Edgar to Max Holloway, to Leona Machida, to Rashad Evans, to Anderson Silva, or to Robert Whitaker, when you lose that first time, or when you lose, and that aura of invincibility is is gone, man, it takes a lot. It takes a whole lot to get back to where it was before. And if you look at it, what happened to Anderson Silva when he lost to uh, Chris Weidman, when he was clowning around and got caught and got knocked out? Anderson Silva never reached the heights that he reached again. What happened to BJ Penn when he lost that decision in Abu Dhabi to Frankie Edgar? He never reached the heights that he reached again. What happened when GSP fought Big Train? What was that big what was that what was that guy's name? Johnny Hendricks, thank you. When 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 um GSP, my man, my guy, fought Johnny Hendricks in that tough fight after GSP was considered the pound-for-pound pound best and going through a thing and winning those titles and defending that welterweight title. GSP said, I had enough. I'm done. I'm not retiring, but I'm walking away. And after that one fight years and years and years later against um, Michael Bisbane, had we seen GSP? He's retired. He's looking for the right fight. He's retired. He's thinking about it. He's retired. The situation has to be right for him to come back. He's retired. I mean, I don't know what the hell GSP is doing, but I'm telling you, man, the reign as champion, the reign as being the man, the reign as being the number one guy, the reign that uh, Conor McGregor is looking to get back to, that's rarefied air. There's not too many people who have been broken down and then risen again. Take a look at the greats. Take a look at the champions. Take a look in recent history. 
of how many guys who have been fallen and then have gotten back up and risen to the heights of serious accomplishments in terms of winning titles and that type of thing. That's what Conor McGregor is trying to do. I think, I wonder, I hope. But does Conor McGregor look back and see the pathway and see the road that he had to travel to get where he was that night, to get where he was in the position to be, where he was as a crossover superstar, as a public figure, as a person of that high caliber of interest five years ago when he defeated Eddie Alvarez at MSG? Does he take a look at that and say, man, I, I, don't, I don't have that anymore. I can't dedicate myself to do what I did to get in the position that I, that I was five years ago because of my, because of my, uh, my brand, because of my being a father, because of my other responsibilities. I just, don't, I just don't have the time. I just don't have the inclination. And again, 32 is not 25. And the lightweight division, the welterweight division, man, there's some tough, tough, hungry guys out there. So they're all young Conor McGregor-ish. Where it's kind of like, yeah, guess what, Connor? That fatherhood and all that stuff that you're doing now, I want to get to where you are. So I'm starting this journey, and now I'm that young young lion, that hungry lion that's looking to eat, and not willing to do anything, say anything, put myself through torture, uh, do what it takes to get to the level of success that you have. Connor McGregor's not going to go back and reach for that again. 32 years old and $120 million worth in the bank? Come on, man. What's your motivation? What's your motivation, Conor McGregor, for coming back? What's your motivation for getting back on the octagon? Is it a situation because you have to? Is it ego-wise because without the UFC, without that platform to perform, you have to look in the mirror and say exactly what am I? What is it? How much of a motivating factor in is a McGregor wanting in terms of revenge for the first UFC fighter to KO him. How much is that of a motivation compared to I want to be lightweight champion again? You can find some motivation in revenge. You can find some motivation in saying, damn, man, you know what? This guy knocked me out. Something tells me that I don't know about the motivation because if you have to go back to getting so heated and getting so angered about Dustin Poirier putting the info on blast in terms of you not yet cutting a check for that foundation... If that's going to be the thing that's going to put you over, if that's going to be the thing that gets you motivated, if that's going to be the thing that's going to fire you up, hey man, you're fighting Dustin Poirier. You, I don't know. I don't know. The unwavering dedication and determination that Conor McGregor should have should be, damn man, this motherfucker KO'd me in the second round. I would knock the fuck out. You can go on... YouTube, you can go on images over in Google and see my ass laid out, knocked the fuck out. That's the thing that's going to get me back to uh, get that eye of the tiger. That's what's going to make me do what Rocky did in uh, Rocky 3, where he had to go back and start all over, go back, go back to the ghetto, go back and live in uh, rough terrain, go back and then train with Apollo and go old school. That's what Conor McGregor should do in terms of his motiva motivation. The fact that I got knocked the fuck out, and now I'm at the situation where if I lose again to Dustin Poirier, I don't know where I'm going to go. If my motivation truly is to go and be become the light champ light uh, lightweight champion again, I don't, if I lose to Dustin Poirier, if I get knocked out again by Dustin Poirier, as popular as I am, as well known as I am, I still am the face of the UFC. 
can I then justify the fact that, well, I got knocked out by Poirier again, so I'll just fight one more time and you can move me back into the lightweight championship picture again. So that should be his motivation. But I don't know how much, is it baby steps? I don't know how people use their motivation. Is it baby steps? Is the motivation for Conor like short-term in terms of, look, I just want to get my revenge on Dustin Poirier, and then my next motivation will be going for that lightweight uh, championship belt or, you know, going and, you know, settling the score with, uh, with, with Diaz or whatever. I don't know. But it's, I don't know. And how much of that motivation can be manifest, as I mentioned before, when you're at the point of your life where Conor McGregor is right now? How much more motivation do you have when you know you'll never reach the height and popularity Popularity and the ability to make money like he did the night of November 12th, 2016, almost five years ago. You can't go any farther. You're never going to be able to reach that feeling. You're never going to be able to reach those heights. What's McGregor's going to, what is McGregor going to do? What's going on? Take a look, man, at what 2016 was all about. Take a look at what Conor McGregor was when arguably... He was one of the most well-known athletes in the world. Talk about what was happening in the world around that time in 2016. You're talking about that was the year Muhammad Ali died along with Arnold Palmer and Gordie Howe. That was the situation. That was the year when some backup quarterback from the uh, San Francisco 49ers named, um, oh, uh, keep, keep, keeper pick, keeper Nick, keeper pellet, Colin Kaepernick. Yeah, knelt during a pre-game, knelt during the uh, pre-game national anthem to protest police brutality and unjust treatment of the uh, black community. That was the year that everything started with Kaepernick. That's the year that everything uh, started uh, fermenting from that. The Chicago Cubs won their first World Series championship since 1908, the longest ever drought in American professional sports. That was 2016. That was the last time we saw Conor McGregor be Conor McGregor. That was the highest of the high for Conor McGregor. And since that time, I'm telling you, man, life moves on. Times move on. People's allegiance and loyalty, they don't last that long or last at that level if you're someone like McGregor. It might last for a team. It might last for a player on a team that you love. That might happen. But if you're talking about individual sports, if you're talking about tennis, if you're talking about boxing, if you're talking about MMA, Hey, man, you have to be really special. Oh, oh, yeah. And you also have to be pretty much consistent during that time for people to continue with their loyalty. People can continue with their passion for you. Mentioned before, almost five years, McGregor has fought three times. He's one and two. So what's going to be happening? What's going to be going on? How, where is the motivation for Conor McGregor? Where is it at? How was it defined? What's getting him up in the morning to train? What's firing him up? As I mentioned before, if his motivation is, I'm pissed off that uh, Poirier put my uh, info or put my um, my business in the street like he did. If that's your main, in, if that's your main motivation, uh, Connor, man, you're in some trouble. You're in some real trouble, and it kind of makes me question: How much do you want this? If that's going to be the thing to fire you up. To me, my thoughts, my opinion is you should be motivated because, again, that guy knocked you the fuck out. That should be your motivation. If 
He came back and said, you know, this is what's driving me. This is what's taking me over the world for me to train. This is what's getting me up in the morning to run my seven or eight mile. This is what I'm doing right now. This is what's motivating me to have the hardest training camp that I've ever had. Then, all right, fine. I'm, I'm, I'm listening. I'm listening about the Conor McGregor comeback. I'm listening about the opportunity that Conor McGregor might get revenge on this loss, if that was what he was saying. But if he's talking about, I was so pissed off that Dustin Poirier was talking about I didn't fulfill my commitment to uh, to a, um, a charity that he was talking about. And because of that, the fight's off because this is bullshit. And who's, who's this guy to be talking about this about me? And does he know who I am and all this kind of stuff? And then he calmed down or whatever. And he said the fight's back on. If we're going to be surrounding the hype, and that's going to be the main storyline for McGregor coming back, I'm going to tell you right now, don't be... Put, put put your money on Dustin Poirier if that's going to be the deal. So what happens? I'm telling you right now. I ask the question, what's going to be happen if, happening if McGregor loses to Poirier in July? I think if he loses, especially if he gets knocked out or stopped or submitted, I think McGregor retires. I don't think he comes back if he loses to a Poirier again. I really don't. Again, 32 going on 33. He's got a boatload of money. He's got other things to do. I don't think that uh, this is a situation where, again, if he's not fighting big fights, if he's not fighting main events, how can you put Conor McGregor if he comes back in a main events uh, uh, spot if he loses to Poirier again and falls to one and three in his last four? What are you going to do? Where, where are you going to put him? Who are you going to fight him with? Is he going to be a guy that's just going to then fight Diaz? Is that going to be the deal? If that's Is, is that still something that's going to... Um, make the type of money that McGregor is accustomed to making when he fights? I mean, when you've had the type of payday that Conor McGregor has had, are you really going to go ahead and say, oh, yeah, I'll be the co-main event and the payout disparages, it's going to be, uh, you know, not that great? No. I think that, again, if he loses, McGregor is done. McGregor retires. He says, thank you for the uh, good times. And uh, walks off into the sunset. And if he does, if McGregor loses, what the UFC going to do? Where is where does the UFC turn for its next superstar? It's cash cow. It's crossover superstar. If McGregor loses, where do they go? McGregor is still one of the most popular fighters in 2020. I saw a poll and talking about the most popular fighters on Instagram, the most popular UFC fighters. On Instagram in the year 2020, they had McGregor, Khabib Nurmagomedov, Ronda Rousey, John Jones, Nate Diaz, Anderson Silva, George St. Pierre, Paige Van Zandt, good Lord, and Israel Adesanya. So take a look at those fighters that I just mentioned. McGregor, Khabib, Rousey, Jones, Diaz, Silva, GSP, Van Zandt, and Adesanya. The most popular UFC fighters on Instagram last uh, year. Of those fighters, three of those fighters are retired. Rousey definitely ain't coming back. We don't even know that bitch is going to be coming back for the uh, WWE. So Rousey ain't coming back. Khabib ain't coming back. GSP isn't coming back. So those three fighters are not even fighting anymore. One of the fighters isn't even fighting in the UFC anymore because she isn't talented enough to fight for anything significant in terms of championships or title contenders or anything like that. Paige Van Zandt, she's a fantastic 
professional fighter in terms of you know being a fighter you have to have a level of excellence to even be a professional fighter and be ranked you know the top 15 top 20 in the world regardless but in terms of her being the female or being the fighter that can carry a company i mean you're only going to be looking this good for so long sweetheart and if you're getting your ass whooped like you've been getting it whooped in a promotion that's not the ufc what good is it for the fight game? What good is it for MMA? So that's something that's null and void in terms of who we can build our next superstar around. And you have someone like Anderson Silva who's going to be what participating in the boxing match against that other clown, Julio Cesar uh, Chavez uh, Jr. So, I mean, he's long past, I mean, the expiration date as far as Anderson Silva being a relative, uh, uh, being a, a fighter in the UFC that can help them move forward. I mean, that's long gone. That's more than, I mean, we're reaching now almost eight, nine years when, what, 2021? Yeah, so we're reaching, what, maybe five, six, seven years? The last time Anderson Silva was really, really um, significant for the prosperity of the UFC. So I, I, who, who did that leave us with? Who are we going to go to? And if you take a look at those guys who are still fighting, John Jones, I mean, there's the possibility of a super fight with Francis Ngannou. That could be great. That could be wonderful. And Jones is still 32 years old, so we've got some juice left. But Jones has fucked up so many times that how much can the UFC put its trust in John Jones moving forward? Even if he does beat Ngannou and become the heavyweight champ, I mean, that would be awesome. That would be great. But, I mean... It's a situation where can we like exhale a little bit? Because with John Jones, you never know what's going to happen. Even after the fight with Francis Ngannou, which is right now not 100%, which is right now still in negotiations. So even if John Jones, the night that he beat Francis Ngannou, let's see John Jones does a Muhammad Ali against uh, George Foreman, the Rumble in the Jungle, and uh, does something incredible and knocks out the... Uh, knocks out the man known as Francis Ngannou to become the heavyweight champion. I mean, that might be great, but don't you have to wait 24 to 48 hours to really celebrate because we don't know what's going to come back in terms of the piss test? Fool us once, shame on you. Fool us twice. I mean, this was a situation where, hey, man, with John Jones, who knows? He's the heavyweight champion of the world. This is great. This is awesome. We got to talk about John Jones as the greatest mixed martial artist of all time, the... This, that, and the other. What? He popped for PEDs again? Oh, crap. And he's going to be suspended again? Or he's going to be left in limbo again? So with John Jones, man, you don't know exactly what you're going to be getting. And Jones, Diaz, these guys are all over 32. The one guy, I guess, out of Sanya, who I think is either in his late 20s or... He's just 30 years old. I mean, there's somebody that maybe the UFC can build around, but we're talking about a black man with African descent from who's living in New Zealand. The style bender is great. The style bender is awesome, but let's, uh, let's be real here. You know, let's keep it real. If you're going to market someone to, uh, folks in this country, he's got to be the, the best way to do that is a, he's got to be American. B, thank goodness he speaks English, and very good English. C, he's got to have charisma. No doubt that Adesanya has that. B, he's got to be fight-friendly in terms of his style to, to watch. He's definitely got that. But here's a guy who's blacker than night, and he's not from uh, the United States. So what are we going to do with that? Hey, man, I'm just keeping it real. I'm just being real. So what are we going to do with that? Especially when you've taken a look 
at this history of the UFC, and you take a look at the recent superstars, hey man, look, they did a great job before. They did a great job with Chuck Liddell, the Iceman. They did a great job with the Huntington Beach bad boy, Tito Ortiz. They did a great job with the natural Randy Couture. They did a great job in promoting the great one, GSP, a guy who, great fighter, seemed to be like a great guy, but had zero personality, who had zero charisma, who had zero in terms of selling a fight based on his mic talk or based on his deal. The only thing that GSP is known for in terms of, uh, you know, promoting a fight or getting people interested in the fight is when he got into the octagon as a young man after Matt Hughes, then the champion at the middleweight division, defend, or welterweight division, uh, defended his championship belt. And in front of the crowd, GSP got on the, oct- got on the mic in the octagon and said, they'll, uh, they'll let you know, Matt, I was really not that impressed, which made me a huge fan of GSP and the UFC right there. But, you know, GSP, you can't sell a fight based on personality with him. He has none, but he's a hell of a fighter. He's a great fighter. So, you know, they did a great job with that. They did a great job in, uh, you know, fooling the fools and the masses that Ronda Rousey was something special. But they did a great job marketing her. They did a great job marketing Brock Lesnar. They did a great job of Courtney McGregor, who of course, had a lot to do with that. They did a great job with Anderson Silva, making him really uh, popular in his native Brazil. He did a, they did a great job with Rampage Jackson. The Diaz brothers, they did a great job with. Even John Jones, with his bullshit, they did a great job with. So, I mean, the UFC has done a good job. The UFC has the machinery. The UFC has the knowledge. The UFC has the experience to make themselves a superstar, to get themselves a superstar, to create themselves a superstar. It's just a matter of how much is the public going to buy it and how much is that fighter going to want to get behind it. So if you're speaking about who's the next UFC superstar with the public figure crossover superstar potential appeal, you've got right now the baddest man on the planet, Francis Ngannou. Okay, a guy from Cameroon. English is a little bit, yeah, but you know, we're speaking about, or the UFC is speaking about, hey, you know what? With a man from the motherland, the continent of Africa, that opens up the possibilities of him, you know, being a huge draw over in that continent and a bunch of people, big continent, all those type of things. But if you're the UFC, when's the next time you're going to be holding a main event over in Cameroon? When's the next time you're going to be holding a major event, a UFC event in Nigeria? When are you going to be holding your next huge event in the continent of Africa? I mean, he can go over there, he can do his thing and this, that, and the other, but uh, there's some countries in Africa where they ain't the uh, most uh, affluent in the world, if you know what I mean. They're not the most safest in the world, if you know what I mean. Not the most apartheid-free, if you understand what I mean. So it's nice to exploit, and it's nice to bring out, and it's nice to recognize Francis Ngannou in terms of, you know, his roots, uh, and where he's from and all those type of things. But I think with this country, I don't think that plays as much. I don't think that people are going to be getting behind Francis Ngannou and buying uh, pay-per-views when he fights because of the great story that he had and where he's from. I think it's going to be a situation where this guy is built like Adonis. He's the baddest man on the planet. And when he hits you, you go to sleep. So I think that's going to be the drawing card for Francis Ngannou. But with the personality that he has, he's not a braggart. He's not someone who's outrageous. He's not someone who's going to yap and talk and do a lot of crazy shit. So exactly how far can you get with Francis Ngannou? He's not the heel character. He's not going to go in there. He's he's not Mike Tyson-ish. He doesn't have that type of aura about him. He's a nice, 
genteel man until you stick him in the octagon with somebody where he wants to uh, Alistair Overing somebody in terms of with an uppercut almost knocking his head off. So the UFC, they got themselves a heavyweight in look and maybe in story that they can do something about. But the personality with Naganu, I don't know how much farther, I don't know how far you can get with that. John Jones, as I mentioned before, are you really going to uh, put your eggs in his basket in terms of trying to have him be the face of the UFC? They tried that once, and the only thing, those eggs in the basket went to the eggs on their faces. So I don't know if I'm going to trust John Jones again. Israel Adesanya, again, a man who resides in Australia, New Zealand. I mean, he might be popular there. He might be really popular there. But how popular can he be as a crossover superstar in this country remains to be seen. Jorge Masvidal had the opportunity, but Jorge's, what, 34 years old? If he loses to a Kamara Usman again, the baddest motherfucker as far as having that belt, what does it mean? What's the significance? He's going to fall back into the role of maybe a Diaz or if Conor McGregor loses and he decides to stick around. If McGregor loses to Dustin Poirier, that he can stick around and possibly be in the uh, cartoonish type of division where you just have this round robin of guys like Masvidal and um, Diaz and Conor McGregor, McGregor fighting each other and really not being true opponents to fight for titles. I don't know if Jorge loses to Kamaru Usman coming up here in a couple of weeks, which I don't, I don't see any difference from... The first time that they fought in terms of the outcome is concerned. And you could talk about that, the, you know, Jorge had, you know, about a week to train and all those type of things. But I just think that Kamara Usman right now is the uh, <clears throat> much more effective and much more well-rounded mixed martial artist than Jorge Masvidal is. And I think that fight with Gilbert Burns where, you know, uh, kept, uh, kept Usman active while Masvidal hasn't fought since uh, fighting... Kamara, you know, uh, a little while ago, so we'll see, but, you know, Jorge for a while, I mean, he had the juice, Jorge for a while, he had that shine, but will he ever be able to get that shine if he loses to Kamara Usman in about, what, about a week or a week and a half, something like that, Valentina Shinshenko, absolutely beautiful, absolutely gorgeous, a absolute terror when she gets inside the octagon, one of the most dominant martial artist, male or female going, but her her English a little shaky, a little spotty, I don't know about that Amanda Nunez the lioness right now, the goat in terms of uh, female MMA fighters is concerned um, number one, she's Brazilian, number two, she's gay and number three, she doesn't speak English very well, kind of hard to uh, promote her going forward Stipe Miocic doesn't want any part. I mean, he would rather go ahead and fight fires and be a good civilian and um, do his community work and help out his community in Cleveland, Ohio. He said it before. I'm not interested. I'm not looking to be the next Conor McGregor. I'm not going to come up here and bump my gums and sell my brand and do all this bullshit and act like a clown. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to win my titles. I'm going to win my fights. I'm going to go down as the greatest heavyweight of all time. And I'm going to go back to Cleveland, Ohio and be a firefighter and be a husband and be a father and enjoy life. I don't need the spotlight. I don't need the camera. I don't need the microphone. I don't need to put on a show. I don't need to do any of that shit. So they they definitely dropped the ball with Stipe Miocic. They had no, speaking about the brass of the UFC, they had no interest in trying to promote Stipe Miocic 
I think it would be a great story. I think Stipe is a great guy. He's a good talker. He's intelligent. He, he's um, Midwestern strong. He's got that blue-collar type of feel to him. He's a great guy, really nice guy, good story. Good husband, good father. From everything that I see, I don't, I'm not hanging around Stipe when he's with his wife and kids, but from all reports and everything that he's a great dad and a great father and, you know, just a, just a great human being. But if you're not loud, if you're not boisterous, if you're not braggadocious, if you're not outrageous, then for some reason the UFC is like pass. And you had the greatest heavyweight in UFC history, the ability to beat you in several different ways, including the knockout punch, including the one-punch knockout, just ask uh, Verdum, who got knocked the fuck out from Miosic when he was, uh, when Miosic was going backwards. So Stipe should be a guy that the UFC should be getting behind big time. But did they lose that opportunity when he lost to Francis Ngannou? We will see. The the, the trilogy between him and um, Daniel Cormier really didn't generate that much interest outside of the MMA community. I mean, this wasn't something where, you know, they didn't hit a million pay-per-view buys. They didn't, I don't even think they made close to that. And I think it was because of uh, poor marketing. I mean, Daniel Cormier, as great as he is, a great ambassador, he couldn't reach those levels. When, where, where do I see someone here with the new breed of UFC fighters reaching the next level of superstardom? reaching the level where they can be the face of the UFC, and that's going to put them on Good Morning America. That's going to put them on ESPN. That's going to put them on, um, um, oh, Jimmy Kimmel. Where, where, where is it? What are we talking about here? Where are we going? Who is the next fighter here that you see that can draw a million buys, that can draw a million and a half buys? What matchup do you see other than maybe possibly Jones and Ngannou? I don't know, man. What's what's a Jones-Ngannou fight can do? I'm... I'm, I'm thinking it could do over a million, but it's not going to reach the levels of an Ortiz versus Liddell. It's not going to reach the levels of uh, someone like a Conor McGregor. It's not going to reach the levels of what a Ronda Rousey fought. It's just not. So where do we go if Conor McGregor loses on uh, in July this summer? You can't put it on Poirier. You can't put it on Usman. You can't put it on Max Holloway. You can't put it on Justin Gaethje. As much as those guys, I think, deserve to have that opportunity. I love watching Dustin Poirier fight. Love watching Kamaru Usman fight. Love watching Max Holloway fight. Love watching Jason Gaethje fight. I mean, they're great. They're awesome. They're fantastic. But I love watching UFC fights despite the fact that I took a little break because that fucking asshole wannabe racist, Colby Covington, was bumping his gums, saying racist, racist stupid shit, and the UFC did nothing about it. Despite that, despite my... Despite my uh, the taste that I have in my mouth concerning that, yeah, man, I'm going to be watching the uh, pay-per-views now moving forward. I'm back on that track. I'm back on that ship. I'm back on that train moving forward. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. But uh, Poirier, McGregor, the third fight, July 10th, this summer, T-Mobile Arena, UFC 264. Sold-out crowd, 100% capacity, 100% capacity. We'll see, man. We'll see what's going to be happening. The aftermath is going to be just as important as the fight itself. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Quickly, let me go ahead and talk about the good news that my Georgetown Hoyas got in terms of an impact transfer. Welcome to the Hilltop. Welcome to the family. Welcome 
to the best decision that you ever made, Trey King. The 6'9 transferred forward out of Lexington, playing three years at Eastern Kentucky University, committed to America's coach, Patrick Ewing, and the Georgetown Hoyers earlier this week. Uh, let me see here. As I mentioned before, King stands six foot nine. He averaged 15 points, six rebounds, about a block a game at Eastern Kentucky this season. He's an athletic forward who is more of a vertical finisher at the rim and also displays a solid mid-range game. And the great thing about this is the background on this guy is the fact that uh, he looks like he's not going to be someone. He's going to have two years of eligibility left. He seems to be coachable. He seems to be a guy who's going to uh, not uh, shy away or is not going to shrink with the constructive criticism and the demands that America's coach Patrick Ewing is going to put on him. He's going to take a look at what Chudier Bile accomplished and what he turned into in over a year and just under a year in terms of being with Georgetown without significant practice, without the summer and playing in the Kinner League. I think this is going to be awesome. I think Trey King, if he has two years of eligibility left, this is a guy who by his senior year, by the 2021-2022 season or 2022-2023 season, whatever, is going to uh, be getting some all-conference recognition. I really feel that. He's an improving three-point shooter. This past season, he shot 34% on two three-point attempts per game. Now, you might say, really? Now, all of a sudden, we're going to compare him to J.J. Reddick in college? Calm down. Hold on. Because the year before that, Trey shot 14% from the three. And then the year after that, he shot 22%. So he's improving each and every year. So if he's going to be shooting 34% on two three-point attempts per game, I can expect him to maybe shoot 34 35% on maybe four or five three-point shots a game, which signifies an improvement in his overall game. And before we start talking about, well, you know, Eastern Kentucky, what type of competition that they played, all this kind of nonsense, King did play in a game against Xavier last November. Xavier, if you don't know, was in the Big East Conference. Thank you. And he scored 25 points, grabbed 13 rebounds, even though they lost 99-96 in overtime. Who really gives a fuck? Don't give a damn if Eastern Kentucky won or lost. The fact that in a competitive game that King was one of the better players on the floor had me dancing in the street like Martha and Vandellas, had me dancing on the sea league like Lionel Richie because that type of player is coming to Georgetown with two years left. So we had to do something to fulfill the hole that was left by Cutis Wahab. And as I mentioned before, throughout the year, while I thought that Cutis had a type of, was on the track of becoming a, a very good center by his senior year, that was based on the tutelage and the opportunities that he was going to get from Georgetown. Now he's going to be going to Maryland. You really think Maryland's going to utilize him the way Georgetown did? You think going to Maryland that he was going to, that he's going to be utilized next year like he would have been at Georgetown, that he's going to have the responsibilities at Maryland like he had at Georgetown, that he's going to have the opportunity to shine at Maryland next year like he did at Georgetown? Can someone call Mac McClung? Can someone call James Akinjo? Can someone call uh, Josh LeBlanc and ask them how the grass is on the other side? It ain't greener. In fact, James Akinjo just announced that he's going pro or or uh, entering the transfer portal again. I already told you about Mac McClung putting his name into the NBA draft, and if he doesn't get drafted or he feels that uh, it's not uh, prudent for him to stay in the draft, he's going back and transferring from Texas Tech again. So, hey, you know what? 
cutest. You'll find out. You'll find out what what, uh, what Josh found out. You'll find out what James and Kenjo found out. You'll find out what Matt McClung found out. That damn, all right, well, you know what? Maybe Patrick Ewing knows what the fuck he's talking about. Maybe you'll find out. Next year, great. Maryland is going to be better than Georgetown. Okay, fine. But guess what? You ain't going to be a better basketball player. Now that knowledge, now that wisdom that was going to be embarked upon Cutis, we can now bring that over to Trey King. Or we can now bring it over more and take what was going to be given to Q, the knowledge, the wisdom, the experience of one of the greatest centers who's ever played the game of basketball during his generation, a top 50 NBA player, a guy who played 18 years in the NBA, a guy who coached 15 years in the NBA, the America's coach Patrick Ewing. We can take the knowledge, Coach Ewing can take the knowledge that he was going to give to Embiid and he can spread it to Trey King and Ryan Batumbo and Timothy Eagle Hefe, and if he's still around Malcolm Wilson, he can go ahead and do those things. And in doing that, I think that uh, Trey King is going to be just as good or even better than Cutis Waham. I'm not saying that because I'm still bitter and angry and sore and upset that Q is no longer with the program because of that ridiculous decision to listen to that pimp of his, Duval, whoever his name is, and make the dumbest decision of his life to leave the Georgetown program. Not angry, not bitter, not salty about that. But you know what? I think Trey King coming in gives us a little bit more versatility from the offensive end, gives us someone who I think is more of an instinctive basketball player. I think now the ability to finish around the rim gets better. Of The ability to throw a lob, to throw an alley-oop and finish at the rim becomes a lot better. The ball movement, the flow of the game becomes a lot better. Because I think when Trey King gets the ball in the post, I think that he has a more natural, instinctive feel of the game of basketball to throw it out to make the right decision than what Cutis did. When Cutis, every time you got the ball, when Q got the ball every time in the post or wherever, he had to catch, think, gather. Everything was robotic. It seemed like everything was, wasn't natural. It was, all right, catch. What did I learn in practice? Oh, yeah, that's right. Drop step, up and under, jump hook. Okay, let me try that. There, there was no... There was no instinctive play. When he got the ball, sometimes he would seal his man on, on the left or right block, and Q always went to his right. Very rarely did. He he went to his left about as many times as he passed out for an assist. So Q would get the ball, and sometimes he would seal his man, get the ball on the uh, left block, and instead of taking that one power dribble, that drop step, and go up and finish at the rim, Q would catch the ball, hold it, think, and then go ahead and try to make a move, either a jump hook or doing something turning to his right side. I think with Trey King, we're not going to have that situation. Trey King is going to uh, get his man on his hip, on the block. He's going to uh, catch the ball at an angle, drop step dunk, or drop step go up for a dunk, which is going to either cause a three-point play, get himself a foul and go to the uh, line for two, or in some rare occasion actually get a shot blocked. But it's going to be nice to see someone with more fluidity and more instinctiveness in their game. And that's what we're getting in Trey Young. Excuse me, not, Trey Young would be nice. That's what we're getting in Trey King to uh, replace Cutis Wahab. So we're we're going to be looking at an offense now in Georgetown that is going to be more driver-friendly because King can step out 15, 18 feet away from the basket, which is going to open up the uh, driving lanes for Jordan Riley, for an Aminu Muhammad, for a Kobe Clark. 
for some of our other players moving forward. So I, I love it. I, I really do uh, think that this is a great acquisition for Georgetown and the scribes or the experts on Twitter. I mean, the real scribes. I'm not talking about the clown that's sitting in his basement in his mother's uh, bedroom doing that nonsense. I'm thinking about the John Rothstein's. I'm thinking about the Jeff Goodman's. They've all chimed in to say that this was a positive, excellent step as far as the commitment that they got from Trey King to transfer to Georgetown. It's a very positive step for my Georgetown Hoyas. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Mentioned before, Trey King going to Georgetown, transferring from Eastern Kentucky. He's going to have three, excuse me, he's going to have two years of eligibility left. Average 15 points per game. Uh, was the all-conference player. So, great. And the thing is, I'm getting greedy. I'm getting greedy. I want Patrick Baldwin Jr. I want that top five recruit. I want that five-star recruit. I want that one-and-done recruit. I want him on my squad. Currently sidelined with an ankle injury. But according to many of the sites that I've been watching, that I've been reading, 24-7 and others, Baldwin still has a list of 10 schools that he's looking at, including Georgetown, Duke, University of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where his father coaches. That's where it's kind of like, wait a minute, he's being recruited by the likes of Duke, Kentucky, Georgetown, and Milwaukee, Wisconsin. What? Mentioned before, that's where his father coaches. So the rumor has it, the fact that now Matthew Hurt for Duke, DJ Stewart, Duke, applied for the NBA draft. Um, Duke just got themselves another recruit, Trevor Keels, from Paul VI over in Fairfax, Virginia. Should have been going to Georgetown, but that's okay, Trevor. You'll learn. So uh, Duke got him. He's a uh, five-star guy. Everybody wanted him. Kentucky and all those guys wanted him. But he uh, committed to Duke. So he's going He's going to be in a class, recruiting class, which is going to have Duke in the top three. Pancho or somebody, some 6'9", power forward out of Seattle. He's going to uh, Duke. They have another guy, Henry Coleman. I think that's his name, out of uh, Virginia. Um, forced five-star recruit, top 15, 20 recruit. He's going to be going to uh, Duke. But they picked up a couple of transfers that uh, makes me say, well, wait a minute. If they were really in the running for Patrick Baldwin, then they wouldn't have picked up these uh, these transfers. I think one is from, where was one from? One was from right from that area, right from the uh, ACC uh, territory. I know that he played in a lesser conference. The name escapes me. I forgot. I was reading it on, on a Bleacher Report. But um, basically what I'm saying is that Duke seems to be moving forward without Patrick Baldwin. And wouldn't you think if he was going to be going to Wisconsin, Milwaukee, where his father coaches, don't you think he would have uh, decided to go there by now? So in my opinion, Ewing is very stealth in terms of his uh, recruitment. You know, no one knew anything about Jordan Riley. No one really knew anything about Kobe Clark. No one really knew anything about Tyler Beard in terms of, yeah, there's some interest. Yeah, this, that, and the other. But we were kind of like surprised. Like, really? Jordan Clark? I mean, we were, we were focusing on the shiny new object over here when we should have been paying attention to this shiny new object over there because that shiny new object over there is named Jordan Riley and he's coming to Georgetown and that's the best athlete that we've had in almost a decade and you're trying to tell me that schools like Kansas and others were after him and he decided to go to Georgetown so we weren't competing with Eastern Tennessee State, we weren't competing with the schools in the MAC, we weren't competing with the schools in the Patriot, we weren't competing with the schools in the MEAC or the SWAC, we actually got ourselves a player where the big time 
time programs we're going after? Hello! So that's the deal with Patrick Ewing. So, yeah, everybody's sitting there talking about, well, he's either going to Duke, speaking about Patrick Baldwin, he's either going to Duke or he's either going to Wisconsin-Milwaukee. And there's this like, well, yeah, Georgetown is kind of sneaking around and I've heard it through the grapevines, not with Marvin Gaye or uh, Gladys Knight, but I've heard it through the grapevine that, hey man, Georgetown has a real shot. It seems to be similar to me as far as the recruitment of Patrick Baldwin is concerned. It's the same thing that they were saying about Aminu Muhammad, that, yeah, you know, he has Georgia on his list and he has all these other guys, but man, I'm hearing this stuff about Georgetown, Georgetown, Georgetown. And I'm thinking, ah, come on, man. I mean, you know, five-star recruits don't go to Georgetown anymore. That's ridiculous. Muhammad is a top 15, top 18, possibly one-and-done type player. Man, those guys don't go to Georgetown anymore. Get out of here, this, that, and the other. He's going to be going to uh, Georgia with Tom Cream, or he's going to be going to these blue blood type of schools. He ain't going to no Georgetown. But every time they had that narrative, it was like, yeah, but you know what? I mean, his guardian is talking about Georgetown and you know, he's talking about Georgetown, and Georgetown just seems to be hanging around, and I'm hearing from this person close to the source that he's thinking about Georgetown. I'm hearing from over there in his hometown or and where he's playing basketball that Georgetown has is on the real the reels and all this kind of stuff. And before you knew it, guess who's going to Georgetown University? That five-star McDonald's All-American player, his name is Minu Muhammad. So that's the thing, same thing I'm hoping for when it comes to um, when it comes to Patrick Baldwin Jr. Come on, man, come on, do the right thing. Do I have to give the spiel again, huh? Do I have to tell you the spiel again? Do I have to educate you again? Do I have to make you see the light again? Do I have to give you religion again? Do I have to do this? 18 years in the NBA, my man. 15 years as a coach in the NBA. He was coached by such guys as Pat Riley. He learned his craft as far as coaching is concerned under Steve Clifford, Jeff Van Gundy, Stan Van Gundy, Patrick Riley. Come on now. Played the game for a legend in John Thompson. Played the game for a coach in Don Nelson and Pat, and Pat Riley. Come on now. 33 years, three decades in the NBA. This is a man of Patrick Ewing who has taught everybody in terms of the stars are concerned. When Dwight Howard had his best years in Orlando, who was his coach? Patrick Ewing. When Kimba Walker was in Charlotte, when he had his best years, who was his coach? Patrick Ewing, thank you very much. Come on, man. Patrick Ewing is not just a big man coach. He can coach the guards. He can coach the forwards. Why? Because he did it in the NBA. Just ask Tracy McGrady, who he not only coached, uh, in the NBA, as far as Tracy McGrady is concerned, he also coached Yao Ming. Two Hall of Famers, Patrick Baldwin Jr. Come on, man. You want to get to the NBA, do the right thing, do the sensible thing. Come on. And did I mention the most beautiful females walking around on this earth between the ages of 18 and 22 years old or about a couple of subway stops away at the University of Howard? So you don't even have to hang around the Georgetown campus to find some fine-looking women, the most beautiful Nubian princesses that you'll ever see. You can hop on the subway, take the red line or blue line or yellow line, head on down to uh, Howard University, and you'll see a plethora of absolutely gorgeous, beautiful, intelligent young black women walking around on that campus, man. It'll blow your mind. I've said this before and I'll say it again. When Coach Thompson 
when he brought in a recruit, he would make sure that they went over to Howard University. Or he would make sure if Howard University was having a function or something like that, Coach Thompson made it a made it a um, made it very important at the top of his list to uh, get them over and have them take a look and say, you mean I can have women like this? I mean, there's women like this, and it's only 15, 20 minutes away. And we are speaking about Chocolate City. Now, Chocolate City is now has a little bit more vanilla into it. In fact, a lot more vanilla. You can even say that Chocolate City now is a little milk chocolatey. But still, man, it's something where Patrick Baldwin Jr., come on, man, do the right thing. Make that decision. Join the family. Do the right thing. So, man, I am looking forward to the Kinder League. I cannot wait. I cannot wait. And I'm dreaming of a starting lineup next season of, of Dante Harris, Don Carey, Aminu Muhammad, Patrick Baldwin Jr., and Trey King with the bench rotation of Ego Hefe, TJ Berger, Jordan Riley, Jabari Sibley, Ryan Matabo and, Kobe, and Mutombo and Kobe Clark. Woo! I'm not saying we're going to make the tournament. Well, we get Patrick Baldwin, Trey King, Aminu, and uh, Kerry coming back. Yeah, I'll say we'll make the tournament. Hell yeah, I'll say that we'll make the tournament. And having America's coach? Yeah, I'll say we make the tournament. So Patrick Baldwin Jr., man, do the right thing. Join the family. Do what's right for your future. Do what's right for yourself. Make your parents proud. Make your community proud. Make the world proud. Join America's coach, Patrick Ewing. In my Georgetown Hoyas. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Wassalamu alaikum, my brothers and sisters. Wendell's World in Sports. So glad that you could be with us. Namaste, Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Konnichiwa, shalom, wassalamu alaikum. What is happening? What is going on? Que pasa, mi amigos? Bonjour, bonsoir, monsieur, mademoiselle, je m'appelle Wendell Wallace. Wendell's World in Sports. So glad that you could be with us. Just a reminder, whenever I like to go ahead and say bonjour, bonsoir, whenever I want to say namaste, wassalamu alaikum, konnichiwa, shalom, ke pasa, just my way of saying what's up, just my way of saying hello, just my way of introducing myself, where my podcast is listened to in a lot of those countries, a lot of those areas where they do speak the language, shall we say so. I would just, I just like to, uh, you know, recognize and, uh, you know, say what's happening in, uh, in that measure. So, wassalamu alaikum, my brothers and sisters. Shalom, konnichiwa, namaste, bonjour, bonsoir, que pasa, mi amigos, mi amo e Wendell, mi amo, mi amo Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World of Sports, doing this on a Friday afternoon, recording this on a Friday afternoon. 
good day at work today was up about 75 miles away doing what I needed to do in terms of uh, the youth, in terms of that good stuff. So, uh, yeah, man, it was a good day. Can't complain. I'm still living. I'm still breathing, doing what I need to do to try to make this place, to try to make this world, to try to make everybody who I come in contact with a little bit better. Understand where I'm coming from, understand where I've been, understand what I'm all about. So, yeah, man, glad that uh, you're taking and listen to on this podcast, Wendell's World and Sports. All right, getting back to some sports now. The NFL draft news. I just, I just, you know, my attention span with this kind of stuff. If, if there's really no news, I really just don't like coming up with, you know, what happens if this, what happens with that. It's like, man, you know, what the hell? Don't care. This, that, and the other. You know, when was the last time we heard anything about Russell Wilson? When was the last time that uh, something significant came out of uh, Deshaun Watson for real? I know that the uh, some of the accusers now have to go public with their stuff, but for the most part, we haven't heard anything from Deshaun Watson. So I've gave you my thoughts and feelings about the situation concerning him on other podcasts multiple times. I mean, there's just nothing new for me to say unless I'm going to regurgitate the same thing in terms of what I think Deshaun Watson should do what I think the possible outcome might be, what I think society might take from this, moving forward from this, examples of other situations like this and how it turned out. You know, I've I've gone through that. I've discussed all that. Now, for the most part, I'm just going to leave it alone until something really significant comes up and I can uh, talk about it. So right now, in terms of the NFL draft is concerned, I want to speak about that because the San Francisco 49ers, it seems like they're having a change of heart of what to do with the uh, with the number three pick. Because head coach Kyle Shanahan and general manager John Lynch, they were in Columbus on Wednesday with a handful of other teams to watch Justin Fields throw for his second pro day. The first one wasn't enough, so they had to go again and have a second one. As I mentioned before, the first one took place on March 30th. But Shanahan and Lynch were not in attendance for that one. That was one of the situations where it was kind of like one of the clues that might have been given. That wait a minute now, the the San Francisco the San Francisco Forty ers really going to go ahead and draft Mac Jones out of Alabama with the number three spots. Now the experts and the scouts I've been listening to they've you know given their thoughts and opinions about why the Forty ers have to pick. Justin Fields with the number three pick. And the, and the consensus is, the narrative is, wait a minute now. You don't make a trade like the San Francisco 49ers did with the Miami Dolphins to move all the way up from the 12th overall pick to the third pick and then give away their third round pick in 2022, their first round picks in 2022 and 2023 for to the uh, Miami Dolphins. You don't go ahead and make that type of haul to move all the way up to number three to draft themselves some Mac Jones. Mac Jones is a good uh, quarterback. Mac Jones is a solid quarterback. Mac Jones is someone that you could have with the number 12 pick. So why in the world are the San Francisco 49ers doing all this just to move up nine spots and select someone that they possibly could have at number 12? Or if Mac Jones really has an interest in someone that's before 
their original pick at number 12, then they wouldn't have to give up as much as they did as far as picks are concerned to move up three or four spots with a team like maybe the Detroit Lions or maybe someone like the Carolina Panthers after they made that trade for Sam Darnold. The San Francisco 49ers, then, if they had any trepidation that a team might be moving in to select Mac Jones, guess what? They wouldn't have to mortgage a lot of their future to move a couple of picks to select Jones at number 7 or at number 10. But to move all the way up to number 3, and give up all that they did, man, you can't go for a guy who's going to be just a good fit. You don't make that type of deal for, for you, you make that type of deal when you're drafting an exceptional talent more than an organizational fit. You don't move all the way up and give up all that, uh, all of that, uh, uh, all of those pieces for someone because they're a good fit, that they're a good system quarterback. You draft someone who's going to be a franchise quarterback. I mean a franchise quarterback. I mean a real franchise quarterback. Now, I've said this before. The term game manager when it comes to quarterbacks, I think that's a term where, look, everybody's a game quarterback. Everybody is a is a uh, system quarterback. Everybody, every quarterback, I don't care who you are, has a system that they need to play in to be, that have a system that fits. For them to maximize their potential. Tom Brady is a system quarterback. Patrick Mahomes is a system quarterback. Russell Wilson is a system quarterback. You have to have a good offensive coordinator. You have to have some type of um, of, of, of a relationship in terms of the quarterback coach, the offensive coordinator. You have to have a certain type of cohesion, a philosophy that's going to fit with the quarterback in terms of how you want to run your offense to make it fit. That makes that quarterback a system quarterback. Aaron Rodgers, he's a system quarterback. Drew Brees was a system quarterback. Deshaun Watson is a system quarterback. You can take the best quarterback in the league and go all the way down to the worst quarterback in the league. They are system quarterbacks. Tom Brady can't thrive in any uh, offensive, uh, offensive scheme that you put him in. Tom Brady would not be would not be effective at all running the same scheme that the Baltimore Ravens do. Tom Brady can't do what Lamar Jackson can do from the quarterback position. Tom Brady can't do, never could do, what Lamar Jackson or Russell Wilson could do from the philosophy, from the schemes that those offensive coordinators and those teams put those quarterbacks in. But Lamar Jackson can't be the same type of quarterback if he'd been put if he would put into a same system as Tom Brady or a Drew Brees or a Deshaun Watson or a Patrick Mahomes. Now there's some quarterbacks, say for instance, like a Patrick Mahomes, who could thrive under multiple offensive schemes, but every quarterback is a system quarterback. It's just a matter of putting the right pieces around that quarterback and putting him in the correct system. But when you're speaking about moving up like the San Francisco 49ers did, I think Justin Fields could fit in multiple schemes. I think Mac Jones is kind of boxed in terms of what he could do. So if Kyle Shanahan is talking about, yeah, I want to draft Mac Jones because I think that he would thrive in my situation, in my in my um, scheme, the way I uh, run an offense, that's great or anything. But I think Justin Fields could be just as good running that scheme as 
Mac Jones. And if you have to deviate a little bit, if you have to expand just a tad, if you have to, you know, move some pieces around, then you also have a quarterback who could adapt to that in adjusted fields. And we don't know if that's the case with someone like a Mac Jones. So that that's the deal there. That's one of the reasons why these experts, that's the reason why one of these, you know, these draft folks are talking about, that's the reason why people now are talking about, wait a minute, it seems to me, seems to me that Justin Fields should be the number three pick because if the San Francisco 49ers are going to be moving up to select him or are going to be moving up to number three, that's the quarterback that you select, not Mac Jones. Well, according to Albert Greer of Sports Illustrated, he said the reason why the 49ers moved up, moved up, it wasn't because of the drafting the generational quarterback, blah, blah, blah. The reason why the 49ers moved up because they feel with five quarterbacks with genuine first round talent, they wanted the best chances available to select the best one. So if you're with the number 12 pick, what happens, for instance, if, say, someone like the Chicago Bears blows the doors off of the um, New York Jets, and then they're with the number two pick? What happens if my Washington football skins blow the doors off of the Miami Dolphins, and then they move up? What happens if another team that's in need of a quarterback blow the doors off of the Cincinnati Bengals at the number five pick, and then, you know, they get themselves into a position? What happens if the New England Patriots blow the doors or move up past um, past um, the 49ers at number 12, and they garner the pick that the Dallas Cowboys had at number 10. What happens if all of these teams move up in a position on draft day or before draft day to put themselves in the position to get themselves a Zach Wilson, to get themselves a Justin Fields, to get themselves a Trey Lance, to get themselves a Matt Jones? Well, then it could be possible that the San Francisco 49ers could be sitting at number 12 and three of the quarterbacks that they really wanted to have, such as a Trey Lance, such as a Mac Jones, such as a Justin Fields, they could be gone because those other teams who needed a quarterback might have been proactive in their aggressiveness to get into a position to draft those guys. So the 49ers are thinking, if we have to get, we have to get ourselves in the best possible position. This is according to uh, Albert Greer of Sports Illustrated. The 49ers were thinking we have to get ourselves in the best possible position to make sure that we have the best chance of getting a quarterback and having the most options of getting ourselves a quarterback. They say that's the reason why they moved up. Not because they feel that Justin Fields is the guy that's going to uh, be a generational great quarterback for 10 to 12 years and we need to move up with the only, you know, with the only idea of drafting him. That's not the key. And that's not to say they don't think Justin Fields could be great. But I think, once again, it's to maximize uh, every opportunity to select the best football player or the best quarterback available. Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. I will say this. Remembering the segment before I was talking about, you know, the fight between Dustin Poirier, the uh, fight this July in Vegas, the trilogy between Dustin Poirier and Conor McGregor, how this is the biggest fight so far in the MMA career of Conor McGregor. Because if he loses, what's he going to do? Is he go- There's a strong possibility, I feel, that he might retire. Well, to bring it back to the NFL draft concerning the San Francisco 49ers, I think the selection 
that the organization makes, which is going to be led by the GM, President of Football Operations, whatever you want to call him, John Lynch, and the head coach, Kyle Shanahan, I think the selection and number three is going to determine if Shanahan will still be coaching the San Francisco 49ers in the year 2023, along with John Lynch being employed at the general manager in 2023. They, they, they can't botch this up. They can't make a mistake on this. They can't do what the Chicago Bears did in terms of drafting, moving up to draft Mitchell Trubisky when they could have had Patrick Mahomes or Deshaun Watson. They, they, they can't, the, the, the San Francisco 49ers or John Lynch and Kyle Shanahan, they can't make that mistake. They can't do it. Because, you know, we, or not, I don't know, we, but, you know, sometimes we tend to uh, look at Shanahan and we take a look at the fact that he made the Super Bowl and we take a look at the success that he's had with quarterbacks. And we take a look and we general, generally regard him as, you know, one of the great play callers and great offensive minds in the NFL. And we take a look at the guy who's still in his early 40s and seem to have a longevity in terms of him being a coach and him being a good coach and him being a solid coach and him being a coach that's a keeper. You know, he's almost kind of like the Quinn Snyder of the NFL in terms of, you know, that guy that you want to have in your organization, a guy who's going to be wanting to coach for your organization as long as you want to. Sometimes we have that perception about Kyle Shanahan, as I mentioned before, because we look back at the work that he did with Kirk Cousins when he was with the Washington football team and the year that he got out of RG3, making him the rookie of the year, one of the most dynamic players in the NFL for that season. The fact that uh, he was the offensive coordinator for the Atlanta Falcons and Matt Ryan thrived under Shanahan and got him to be the MVP. So I think because of that, we just go on the assumption that Kyle Shanahan is a guy that's going to be able to coach and coach in San Francisco for as long as he wants, or at the very least, coach for another five or six years. That's his leash is going to be longer than generally some of the other coaches out there because of his uh, exceptionalness concerning the offense. But if you take a look at it, and if you take a look at the duo of uh, Lynch and Shanahan, them being the GM and coach in the four years that they've been in the uh, Bay Area working with the uh, 49ers organization, their record over those four years is 29-35. and 35. That's six games under 500. Depending upon your skin color, a record like that in the NFL after four years will get you fired in a lot of places. And if you take away the 2019 season where they went 13-3 and and made it to the Super Bowl, in three years, Kyle Shanahan as a coach, John Lynch as a GM, they're 16-32. and 16-32, and 32, you take away that one season. Was that one season a fluke? Was that one season mainly based on Robert, uh, the defensive coordinator for those uh, San Francisco 49ers team? Was that a situation where it was the defense was the main reason why the 49ers were in position to uh, compete for the Super Bowl? Are we taking a look at a Brian Billick situation where, you know, Billick with the Baltimore Ravens, when he was in um, Minnesota with his offensive mastermind because he worked with Randy Moss and, you know, had Randall Cunningham, got Randall Cunningham out of mothballs and had him be the uh, NFL comeback player of the year. And he had an awesome season and Randy Moss had all types of records and Chris Carter, you know, Carter got himself 
basically into the Hall of Fame with his uh, production that he had in Minnesota. And Robert Griffin was a running back. Minnesota put up a boatload of points. And if it wasn't for Gary Anderson missed field goal, that the uh, Vikings would have gone into the Super Bowl, losing only one game during the entire season, and probably would have beaten the um, Denver Broncos with John Elway during that time, Elway's second um, Super Bowl before he called it a career. And Brian Billick parlayed that into becoming the head coach of the Baltimore Ravens, and he was supposed to be this offensive genius. Well, the Baltimore Ravens won themselves the Super Bowl, and everyone's saying, yeah, they won themselves the Super Bowl. And, oh, my goodness, how awesome was Brian Billick as a coach to win a Super Bowl with Trent Dilfer as your quarterback. And before that, it was Tony Banks, who was even worse. But you also have to remember the reason why the Baltimore Ravens won that Super Bowl, it had nothing or very little to do with the offense, even though you had Shannon Sharp and you had a pretty good running game and Jamal Lewis with the special teams was, uh, you know, provided also a, a, an extra punch in terms of adding to the success. But the reason why the Baltimore Ravens won the 2000 or 2001 Super Bowl, one of those two, I forget, was because of their defense. Was because of Tony Saragusa. Was because of Ray Lewis. Was because of uh, those guys. Rod Woodson and those guys. That's the reason why. And Marvin Lewis as the defensive coordinator. That's the reason why the Baltimore Ravens won that Super Bowl. You take away that Super Bowl. Take a look at Brian Billick's record as the coach with the Baltimore Ravens. Decent, but far from stellar. So I'm, I'm thinking, is Kyle Shanahan the new Brian Billick? In terms of, yeah, they made the Super Bowl. Yeah, they were 13-3. and But damn, was that because of the offense? Or was that because of the defense? So moving forward now, this is something where Kyle Shanahan is going to have to. I'm not saying that he's going to be fired if they uh, don't make the playoffs or anything like that for the uh, 2021 season. But, you know, I'm I'm starting to think here, okay, is Shanahan more of a really great coordinator or is he really going to be an exceptional or above average coach that is yet to be seen and 16 and 32 taking away from the 13 and 3 and even if you include the 13 and 3 the fact that he's six games under 500 in a league where coaches both black and white but though but mainly black have been fired for records that have been much better than that i mean what are we looking at here if the 49ers decide to go with matt jones and Matt Jones turns into Mitchell Trubisky, while Justin Fields turns into Deshaun Watson without the allegations of sexual misconduct. I'm sorry, John Lynch, you're gone. I'm sorry, Mike, uh, Kyle Shanahan, you're gone. That would be unacceptable. That would be fireable. A fireable offense. So they have to be very, very careful, Shanahan and John Lynch. If they're going to go ahead and select Mac Jones. Now, I've said it before in other podcasts. When it comes to quarterbacking knowledge, when it comes to football philosophy, when it comes to offensive philosophy, when it comes to putting together an organization and a team, John Lynch and Kyle Shanahan know infinitely more about this stuff than I do. And if this guy was even thinking about including my thoughts and opinions and their discussions about who they should be selecting. They should be fired based on that. But what I'm just saying is, is that, look, um, if you're a San Francisco 49er fan, and they go ahead and select Mac Jones, I mean, you have to go ahead and say, oh, oh okay, you know, he, well, let's let's go ahead and take, let, uh, take a look at uh, Kyle Shanahan's track record. Mentioned before the success he had with RG3 in his rookie year, the maturations of a six-round pick in Kirk Cousins, um, the offense that he had in Atlanta and 
from 2015 and 2016. The fact that uh, the Falcons offense with the highest scoring offense in the regular season and the uh, 2016 season and Mac Jones, I'm sorry, and, and Matt Ryan won the league MVP that year. So, okay, all right. But then again, the naysayers can say, yeah, that might be great and everything. And those are some impressive uh, deals. But what did he do with Jimmy Garoppolo? Because I thought that the Patriots gift wrapped a franchise quarterback to Garopp- to uh, the uh, 49ers with Garoppolo. I thought this was a situation where everybody was up in arms. How in the world could Bill Belichick trade the, I guess you could say, the Steve Young while Tom Brady playing Joe Montana was still going? I mean, we had a situation where here where it could be, uh, you know, an, uh, Brett Favre, Aaron Rodgers type of situation. A Steve Young, Joe Montana situation. A, at the very least, Danny White, Roger Stallback situation. Where it's like, yeah, Brady's not going to play forever. And he's already in year 15, 16. He's already in his mid-30s. I mean, how much longer does he have? We have a guy right now in Garoppolo who is someone that could just, you know, pick things right up. But instead, you trade him to the San Francisco 49ers. And in that first year, 2019 with Shanahan, hey, we can sit here and, you know, talk about damn shit, damn shit, damn, you know, because Garoppolo's being traded or he's being on the trading block or he's being replaced or the 49ers are moving up to get themselves a quarterback because they feel that Garoppolo is not the future for that position. But look, man, I mean, he had a solid to good 2019 season. And after the 2018 season, yeah, they went ahead and made him the highest paid player in NFL history per year basis. When they signed him to that contract, which was for a five-year, $137 million contract. And, and maybe that has something to do with it. Because, again, you add production to how much money he's making, sometimes that could be skewed. If Garoppolo was making pretty good quarterback money, and he had the year that he had, and he didn't get injured as much as he did in 2020, well, then maybe there would be more of a patience level to uh, keep him in fold. But when you're paying Garoppolo that type of money and paying that type of money comes with the expectation that if you're paying a guy who is the high paid player, then you have, he has to be more than good. He has to be all pro. He has to be MVP. And the expectations and the responsibilities become much higher. So in a situation like that, do you blame the quarterback or do you blame the person who gave him that money? Garoppolo wasn't that type of player. He was never going to be that type of player. But I'm not blaming the man for accepting the money. Someone gives you that amount of money, hell yeah, you take it. So, you know, it's a, it's a situation where, look, maybe Garoppolo's getting a raw deal. And we don't know, really don't know if, um, we really don't know whoever they select, Justin Fields or Matt Jones, is going to do any better than Jimmy Garoppolo 2019. But I'm thinking someone like a Mac Jones, to me, is similar to someone like a Mac Jones. So I don't know in terms of the ceiling that he has. Natural talent, all those type of things. I think it's a you know, situation where, hey, man, I think Garoppolo and Mac Jones are sort of kind of one and the same. So what are we thinking about here? What are we looking at here? What are we talking about here? So... I just feel that, uh, you know, I don't know, in terms of moving forward. But uh, now there seems to be some talk that, you know, what maybe, just maybe, is a situation where 
Um, the 49ers are going to go for Justin Fields after all. But we'll see, man. I mean, there's two weeks left of the draft or a little less than two weeks in the draft. Who knows, man? This thing could switch back and forth another four or five times depending upon the whims and depending upon what's going on in the world of sports and what's a slow news day and everything like that. We need to talk about something. So, you know, on Monday they might be talking about, hey, Justin Fields going to the 49ers. And then Thursday they might be talking about, well, could it be that Matt Jones is going to the 49ers? And then the next Monday they could be talking about, well, what would be the advantage of Matt Jones going to the 49ers? And then that Wednesday they could be talking about what's the advantage of Justin Fields going to the 49ers. So, I don't know, man. We'll see. We'll see. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Real quickly, I want to hit this before I move on. The double standards concerning Trevor Lawrence. Did you read this interview that he had for uh, Sports Illustrated? The interview starts, The sun is setting in Laguna Beach, California, and Trevor Lawrence wants to enjoy it. He opens the blinds so the light can stream in. His fiancée, Marissa Mowry, Sits with a glass of red wine. Drinking wine in the morning? Say what? They met as kids and started dating seriously in high school. And soon, they will move to, well, hang on. So they're talking about, here's the first interesting part when reading this about Lawrence that I read. And I was like, hmm, should I have this as a red flag? Or exactly what's, what in the hell is going on with this? He said, quote, it's beautiful out here, Lawrence says. Soaking soaking this in is nice. Soaking this in is nice. I'm not looking too far ahead. I'm the type of guy, if I look too far ahead, I might, I kind of get stressed out. I wanted, I want to do it because I want to be, okay, yeah, so here we go. So it's like, the interesting thing that I saw about Lawrence was, you know, I'm not looking too far ahead. I'm the type of guy that if I look too far ahead, I might get kind of stressed out. Really? Really? Interesting. And then it's like, I want to do it because I want to be the best talking about playing quarterback. I want to do it because I want to be the best that I can be. I want to maximize my potential. Who wouldn't want to? <clears throat> you kind of waste, you kind of waste it if you don't. I don't know, man. When it comes to Lawrence here, he had some quotes from the interview and he had some folks talking about him basically saying that, hey, you know what, man? Trevor Lawrence is not the type of guy that's going to have football just run his entire life. You know, Trevor Lawrence has other interests. Trevor Lawrence have, has other likes. Trevor Lawrence doesn't live and die with football. His whole existence of being is not shaped around football. It's hard to explain that because I want people to know that I'm passionate about what I do and it's really important to me, but I don't have this huge chip on my shoulder that everyone's out to get me and I'm trying to prove everybody wrong. I just want to have that. I can't manufacture that. I don't want to. There's... Also, more to life than playing football. <laughs> oh, 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 boy. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Boy. And he goes, I think, uh, I, and I think people mistake that for being a competitor. Uh, I think that's, that's unhealthy to a certain extent. Just always thinking about you've got to prove somebody wrong. You've got to do more. You've got to be better. What should we make of this? This is Trevor Lawrence that we're talking about. So speaking about, you know, I don't have a chip on my shoulder. I'm not out to prove anybody wrong. I'm not out to prove this. I'm not out to prove this. I'm just going to try to do the best I can and let the chips fall where they may. But also remember that who I am as a human being and, let, and make sure that football doesn't consume me and, you know, be a well, 
rounded person and all those things. What do you make of that? This is Trevor Lawrence here. This is not some scout. This is not some anonymous source. This is something that's not heard through the grapevine. This is Trevor Lawrence saying this himself, basically. Maybe not verbiage that I'm using in terms of, hey, you know what? I just want to be a well-rounded human being and be a thoughtful guy and not have football consume me morning, noon, and night. And if you're a, if you're a an NFL person making the decision, what do you think about this? If you're someone in that locker room and you're Jacksonville right now and you see those type of uh, quotes, what are you thinking about, thinking about right now? If you're going to cut that large check. For Trevor Lawrence, what are you thinking about right now? Now, Urban Meyer's got some time to either pass or fail his exam in terms of being an NFL head coach. But if you're Urban Meyer, what are you thinking about that? What are you thinking about right now when you hear that type of stuff? What do you make of it? Now, because of his talent and success at Clemson, I don't think that this is a situation where Jacksonville all of a sudden is looking to not draft uh, Trevor Lawrence. But my question is, Hey, man, um, what are we getting at here? What are we dealing with here? And also the double standards because what happens if Justin, what would have happened if Justin Fields would have came out in an interview and said that? There was how long of a shelf life when there was anonymous sources saying that Justin Fields is not dedicated to football. He's not maniacal about football. He's the last one in and the first one out. Remember that? Anonymous source. We don't know it was a scout. Remember Dan Orlowski took some heat for a few days on that because he went on the Pat McAfee show and he said that stuff? What happens if Justin Fields would have said that in a Sports Illustrated article? How much heat, how much complaint, how much ire, how much venom, how much uh, negativity would Justin Fields be getting right now if he said that? And why aren't we directing some of that toward Trevor Lawrence? Why? Because he's supposed to be a generational great? Because despite all of those things, that his talent is so otherworldly that he can overcome that? Is this really something that he needs to overcome? Because we compare Trevor Lawrence to someone like a Tom Brady who has said before, hey, look, man, you know, this is my life. This is what I do. This is everything for me. I'm going to give every ounce that I've got, every single, mo- every single minute that I have to becoming a better football player. That's what it's all about. That's what I want to do. I ain't interested in anything else. I might have some hobbies here and there, but my love, my passion, my dedication, my everything is toward football, 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 and becoming the best quarterback that I can be. And quite frankly, if you're not at that level that I am right now in terms of preparation, in terms of a passion for the game, in terms of trying to be a better quarterback and going the extra step and just being almost addictive to the sport, then you're never going to beat me then you ain't going to have a chance because I am. So if you're not willing to match that, then guess what? I'm going to be whooping your ass at, at 39, 42, 52, 92 if I decide to play that long, depending upon uh, what uh, TB12 has for me. So sometimes we compare that in terms of, well, you know, you know, Trevor Lawrence, if he doesn't reach that status, then obviously he's going to be a bust. thing is, how many quarterbacks out there have the same type of mindset as a Tom Brady. Some might come close. Some might be in the ballpark. As great as Tom Brady is, Tom Brady doesn't have the natural talent that Trevor Lawrence has, so maybe he has to work that hard to be as great as he is. Not maybe. He does have to work that hard to be as great as he is. If you turn out to be 70% of Tom Brady in terms of his accomplishments and the impact that he made on the football field. I mean, aren't we then talking about a guy who's won multiple 
Super Bowl championships and going into the Hall of Fame and regarded as one of the better players in this generation? I mean, isn't Trevor Lawrence in terms of the abilities, the football ability to compare to Tom Brady, who's just maniacal in his preparation and everything concerning the game? Isn't Trevor Lawrence already about, I would say, 30% as far as a natural talent better than Tom Brady? So to do the things that Tom Brady can do or to be 70% of what Tom Brady is, maybe Trevor Lawrence doesn't have to be as obsessive. Maybe Trevor Lawrence can have a little... uh, other interests. Maybe, you know, there's more time for reflection in terms of being more well-rounded as a person for Trevor Lawrence because he already had the natural ability that Tom Brady doesn't have where Tom Brady had to put in all of those extra hours, had to put in that type of dedication to be as great as he is. And, you know, what what Tom Brady, Tom Brady arguably is the greatest quarterback of all time. So if you're 70% of the greatest quarterback of all time, that what means you're a Hall of Famer, one of the... Uh, Better quarterbacks who played. So if you're Jacksonville, would you, would you take that from Trevor Lawrence? So it's all about definition. It's all about thoughts and the feelings and opinions about what is the term that you're looking to use. Tony Dungy said, you know, early on in his, in his football career, a lot of times, you know, he didn't get the job that he should have gotten, A, because he was a black, but B, he would tell owners and he would tell football guys, the GMs, hey, look, man, this is not something where I ain't going to be spending 23 hours a day in the office. You know, I ain't going to be Joe Gibbs where I'm going to have a bed in my office and I'm just going to be sleeping there so I can wake up and not go home and I can just keep staying in the office and looking at film. That's not going to be me. I have other interests. I have other things I want to do. I'm not going to be that guy. I'm not going to be that obsessive guy. And for a lot of GMs and that type of thing, A, Tony Dungy was black, which is strike one. B, he wasn't a shouter or a screamer. He didn't fit the Bill Cower or a Bill Parcells type. So, you know, there were some questions about, well, how good of a coach can he be if he's not ranting and raving and screaming and yelling and motivating and do all those type of things the way we perceive a NFL coach to be. If we take a look at Bill Cower, if we take a look at um, Bill Parcells and such. So that was another strike against Tony Dungy. And you have two strikes coming in already. And then you're going to be telling an owner, look, I'm not going to be that guy who's going to, uh, you know, spend 25 hours a day, eight days a week in, in an office looking at film to try to see what we can do on, do to convert on the third and five. That that hurt him. So, and Tony Dungy turned out to be a pretty damn good head coach. So, I don't know. I don't know. If I'm the Washington football team and we had the opportunity to draft Trevor Lawrence, hell yeah, that stuff wouldn't bother me as much. Would it have been nice if... Trevor Lawrence said, yeah, you know, I eat, sleep, and breathe football, and that's all I do. Maybe something like that is not uh, constructive for him. Maybe if Trevor Lawrence was of that mindset, maybe he would burn himself out. I mean, the game of football is just not physically demanding, but it's also mentally demanding. And sometimes, man, you just, I mean, Tom Brady's a rare breed. Peyton Manning is a rare breed. Now, they're two of the greatest quarterbacks of all time, but you know, again, it's like maybe it's a situation where, look, I, I got to, you know, for me to maximize on what I'm doing, I can't be like that. Is it going to work? Is it not going to work? Who knows? Trevor Lawrence has known nothing but success. And that's the one thing that he can uh, kind of say, well, I mean, you know, you might not like it or you might not like my attitude, but um, it's worked for me. I won championships as a quarterback in high school. I won a championship when I was a quarterback in college. I was one of the greatest quarterbacks who's ever played in college football. 
I was the number one recruit as a high school senior, not just at the quarterback position, but overall. So, so far, it's been pretty good in terms of my uh, thoughts and philosophies and feelings about being a football player. So, you know, why should I change now? The NFL has a way of making folks change and rethink their thought process. So, we'll see. We'll see. My, my only thing is that, again, you know, if Justin Fields would have said that, what would the reaction have been? Whoever made that comment about Justin Fields not loving the game, last one in, first one out, whoever made that comment, can we get a quote from him? Can we get his thoughts and feelings about what Trevor Lawrence said? Can we get an anonymous source from a scout or from a GM or from upper management or from someone on the football staff at Clemson or someone from his high school in Georgia? Can we get someone to get a quote or make a quote or make a statement concerning what he said? Trevor Lawrence in that Sports Illustrated article? Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. The double standards of Trevor Lawrence. We'll see what happens if his philosophy still holds water and is still successful once he becomes the number one pick of the Jacksonville Jaguar. Expects to be the savior of the Jacksonville Jaguars. Not not in year three, not in year four, right off the bat. Let's see if the success that Trevor Lawrence has had in terms of being a football player, in terms of being a quarterback with that philosophy, continues once he reaches the NFL. world of sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us talking about what's going down in the world today, talking about what's happening in the sports world today, transitioning now from what I was speaking about with the NFL to the NBA before I get into some Eastern Conference talk. Want to uh, recognize and give special dedication to LaMarcus Aldridge announcing his retirement from the NBA this past Thursday on Twitter uh, because of an irregular heartbeat. Uh, in fact, what he wrote on Twitter was the fact that, let me see if I can pull this up here. What he said was, um, for 15 years, I've put basketball first, and now it's time to put my health and family first. He said that he experienced an irregular heartbeat during the Nets game against the Los Angeles Lakers on Saturday, this past Saturday, after which his condition, condition worsened. He said, quote, the next morning, I told the team what was going on, and they were great getting me to the hospital. Uh, he wanted to, went on to say, Though I'm better now, what I felt with my heart 
that night was still one of the scariest things I've experienced. So, Aldridge had missed the last two games that the Nets played because of what the team called a non-COVID-19 illness. Interesting career for LaMarcus Aldridge. First of all, I'm glad that uh, he went ahead and um, got the situation, found out the situation as far as with the regular, irregular heartbeat is concerned and is taking himself out of harm's way by trying to go and force through this and continue to play. Easier, I guess, after the career that you had, like the career that he had, and the fact that he's 35 years old, and the fact that he was on really the back nine of his career, the fact that, you know, this didn't happen when he was 23 or 25 and still in the prime of his career, the fact that he made his money, the fact that he's going to get his pension, the fact that he accomplished everything that he needed to accomplish or he wanted to accomplish in terms of any individual uh, success that he might have. I know that he never won an NBA championship. I know that he never made it to the NBA finals and he only made a a couple of conference um, final series. But uh, for the most part, he's got he got his family, he's got his health, he's got generational wealth. He gets to see tomorrow, the next day, and the next day. So even though his NBA playing career might be over, I think that he got the most in terms of the years that he played, the compliments and the adulation and the respect from across the league, from the players, and from uh, everybody associated with the league. So while in the... Uh, Micro, it might be a sad, sad day. The fact that, again, he uh, found out what was going on and uh, nipped it in the bud in terms of could have gotten worse. See Hank Gathers, see Reggie Lewis. Uh, good for him. Good for him. Is LaMarcus Aldridge a Hall of Famer? I don't know, man. I don't know. I'm ready for that debate right now. Um, I don't know. I don't know. He was a very good player. It all depends on what your definition of a Hall of Fame player is. I. Uh, I don't think he is, but my expectations for Hall of Famers are, are pretty high. I think that he was a very good player during his time, during his um, period in the NBA, his generation of the NBA. But, you know, what constitutes a Hall of Famer in your eyes? What constitutes a Hall of Famer um, in the people who are voting? Who knows what happens two to three to four years from now in terms of when folks start to uh, see who's going to be in the Hall of Fame during this time period and uh, who was not. I can't really even think of someone who's in the Hall of Fame whose career was similar to LaMarcus Aldridge. So, I don't know. I don't know. I know that, you know, his first eight or nine years or first seven, eight years with Portland were very good. He was a very good uh, basketball player. He was the jewel. He was the gem of the free agency when he decided to sign with the San Antonio Spurs. There was talk that he would sign with the Lakers. There was talk that he might sign with the uh, Phoenix Suns at that time. In fact, Phoenix had brought in Tyson Chandler, who was reported to be one of uh, LaMarcus Aldridge's friends, closest friends in the NBA, and the Suns bringing in Chandler was supposed to be uh, a heads up or, you know, supposed to give them a leg up in the acquisition chances with LaMarcus Aldridge. But in the end, you know, uh, Greg Popovich and the Spurs came in and uh, convinced him to sign with the Spurs. The fact that he had family, I believe one of the reasons was he had family in the Dallas area, so he would be closer to his family, it would be closer to his daughter. And the fact that at that time, you know, people speak about building super teams and they point to the, uh, at least this season, they point to the Brooklyn Nets and before that they point to the uh, Miami Heat and everything. Well, you know, people kind of forget that the San Antonio Spurs, when LaMarcus Aldridge decided to go ahead and play for those guys, 
that almost constituted a super team in itself because you still have to remember when LaMarcus joined the Spurs, they still had Tim Duncan, they still had Manu Ginobili, they still had Tony Parker, and they had Kawhi Leonard. So the acquisition of LaMarcus Aldridge at the time was supposed to signify the fact that the uh, Spurs were going to remain. They were only a few years removed, or even think one or two years removed from winning the NBA championship over the Miami Heat. So when the San Antonio Spurs acquired LaMarcus Aldridge, that was supposed to be a deal where, A, the, the, the elite franchise known as the Spurs was going to continue. And while Duncan maybe had a couple of more years left at best, this was going to be the transition from having it be Tim Duncan's team to ultimately be having it be um, LaMarcus Aldridge's team. While Kawhi at that time was good, he didn't really reach superstardom just yet. He was an integral part. He was an important part of the Spurs, but he wasn't the Kawhi Leonard that we know that we know of right now, who's a top five, six, seven player in the NBA when he was with the Spurs at that time. Still a very important part. So the Spurs had really built themselves, in theory, if you think about it, a super team. Yes, Duncan was way past his prime. Yes, you could say that Ginobili was a few few years removed from his from his best, along with Tony Parker. But that was supposed to be the guy that was supposed to lead the Spurs to the next, you know, he was supposed to lead the Spurs in the next iteration of what the San Antonio Spurs were going to be about. Didn't quite hit that level, but still had very productive years in San Antonio. So, you know, he was a, he was a very fine basketball player. He was a very, very good NBA basketball player. Does that constitute him being in the Hall of Fame? For me, no, but for for others, who knows? We will see, but a special dedication for uh, LaMarcus Aldridge. Hey, man, enjoy that money. Enjoy that wealth. Enjoy the advantage of being LaMarcus Aldridge. I think he has a place now. I think he has uh, he has his residence in in Los Angeles, in the L.A. area, so Southern California. So, you know, enjoy that, and uh, good luck in your future endeavors, future endeavors in uh, in life wherever it takes you. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So moving now to the Eastern Conference situation in the NBA, the Eastern Conference playoff situation in the NBA. Interesting game this past Wednesday night between the Brooklyn Nets and the Philadelphia 76ers. Philadelphia beat Brooklyn 123-119. Really a game that wasn't as close as the score indicated. Philly was up by as many as 20 points in the third quarter, up by as many as 22 once they took the starters out, they relaxed. Brooklyn got into it. Brooklyn got back into it. Um, Kyrie Irving wasn't part of that, even though he was brilliant. Uh, Kevin Durant didn't play that night. James Harden still nursing a hamstring injury. He didn't play that night. So it was supposed to be, even with Harden out of the game, it was supposed to be a preview of a possible Eastern Conference Finals between the 76ers and the Brooklyn Nets. But again... You know, the Nets decided that, you know, back-to-back games or back-to-back nights. So on back-to-back nights, Kevin Durant, who's still working his way back to uh, the team, babe, with the burning love inside, he was was scratched from the game. So, you know, shit damn fuck. Another situation where I was jonesing, I was juicing to see what this might look like. Even though Harden was out, I was still jonesing to see what it was going to look like. But in the last, you know, the last time that the uh, 76ers, and the Nets were going to meet each other in the regular season. We really didn't get any indication of what was going to happen. We really didn't get any type of inroads of what we can foresee in the future if these two teams do meet in the NBA 
Eastern Conference Finals or playoffs because, again, Kevin Durant didn't play. So, all right, moving forward. But, again, Philadelphia over Brooklyn, 123-119 on Wednesday night. Joel Embiid was dominant, not completely efficient against the Nets, especially in the first half, especially with DeAndre Jordan guarding him. I thought that... um, I thought that he was playing like he was trying to prove to everybody that he was really the MVP and not Nikola Jokic. For some things, shooting-wise, was getting a little bit frustrated, but he ended up scoring 39 points, 13 of 29 shooting, 10 of 11 from the free throw line. As I mentioned before, I mean, if you can have any type of takeaway from the game, it's the fact that DeAndre Jordan, who I guess now is back in the rotation, the front court rotation, did a, did a pretty good job, but... You know, over the course of, if Embiid's going to play 35 to 38 minutes a game, over the course of a game, the consistent pounding, the consistent physicality that Joel Embiid forces on the defender, even with DeAndre Jordan, you might be able to hold up for 8 minutes, 10 minutes, 12 minutes, 14 minutes of playing time, but if Embiid is going to be out there for 38 minutes, I mean, sooner or later, it's going to wear you down. And I thought uh, throughout the game, it uh, wore DeAndre down a bit, Joel got his groove on and uh, put on a pretty good performance, put on a physically dominating performance. So Embiid, 39 points, 13 rebounds. Tobias Harris added 26 points and 5 rebounds for Philadelphia. For Brooklyn, Kyrie Irving, because again, again, paced the Nets with 37 points and 9 rebounds. So the importance of this game, they both came into it with the uh, same record, speaking of Brooklyn and Philadelphia. Came into the game with the same records, 37-17. Had split their two games previously. So the winner of this game, which turned out to be Philadelphia, is going to have the um, home court advantage if everything still remains the same um, since they won the season series two games to one. So now the Nets are essentially two games behind Philadelphia in the standings with around 16-17 games to play in the regular season, depending upon when you listen to this section of the podcast. Again, KD didn't play in the game. Blake Griffin didn't play in the game for maintenance reasons. Um, Interesting to see that, you know what, everybody again talks about how unfair the buyout market is and how unfair it was that Blake Griffin is playing for the Brooklyn Nets. But you know what, there's a situation so far where Blake Griffin has still not played with the trio of James Harden, Kyrie Irving, and Kevin Durant, because again, Harden is still out with an injury, so the trio of KD, Kyrie, and James Harden, you know, they played just 186 minutes together, over seven outings in a 13-game span for more than two months, over two months ago. They haven't played together in over two months, that's what I'm trying to say. So, you know, what what's going to be happening here? They haven't played as a unit in the final minutes of any game since February 2nd. What does that mean here? Where are we going here? What are we getting at here? What are we saying here? And the chances are, basically, with James Harden, I'm quite sure with only 17, 16, 15 games left, they're not going to be rushing James Harden. I'm quite sure when the Nets solidify their playoff position, I'm quite sure that Kyrie's going to need some rest, that KD is going to be needing some rest, that they're going to be you know, dealing with those three with kid gloves. So the chances are the Nets won't have another opportunity for those three to play together again for the rest of the regular season. So, you know, it's going to be tough because right now the Nets are going to be playing 17 games in 31 days down the stretch. They have four back-to-backs 
no more than the day between games between May 9th and 10th, and four games and six nights to uh, close out the season. So expect to see a lot of Kyrie Irving leading four guys we don't know the names of, Kevin Durant on a minutes restriction leading the Nets against four guys we don't know we don't know of in terms of the uh, Brooklyn squad is concerned. So. I guess, man, in every single conventional, unconventional way, Brooklyn's trying to win a championship a little bit differently, if you, if you really think about it. As the lovely Malika Andrews of ESPN noted, no team has won, no, no team's three top scorers have played together as fewer as the uh, Brooklyn squad or the Brooklyn trio of Harden, Durant, and Kyrie Irving. No championship team has gotten less together as a group and trying to win the championship. Shaquille O'Neal, Kobe Bryant, and Derek Fisher, they played 10 regular season games together before they made that 2001 playoff run. But you take a look at a team, say, for instance, like the Boston Celtics, where they won their championship with Kevin Garnett and Paul Pierce and Ray Allen. They played almost 1,700 regular season minutes together for that 2007-2008 Boston Celtics squad. You take a look at maybe a LeBron James, a Kyrie Irving, and a Chris Bosh. Those guys played much more, many more minutes than what the Brooklyn Nets are doing right now when they went on their championship run, when they went on and won their first championship over the Oklahoma City Thunder. So, you know, I've, I've said this before. KD, Kyrie, and James Harden, they all, they're, all, they're all intelligent, experienced, and accomplished basketball players, professional basketball players. So some of the things that might hinder other squads, I think with those three guys, a lot of it are, is going to be worked out. N- number one, I compare... This triumphant of KD, Kyrie, and James Harden closer to the 2007-2008 Boston Celtics of Kevin Durant, Paul Pierce, and Ray Allen more than I would say uh, the first run that the Miami Heat had in terms of, uh, or the first year with the Miami Heat where you had um, LeBron, D-Wade, and Chris Bosh. Again, I I just think that with Kyrie and James Harden, they're they're longer in the tooth in their careers. As far as individual accomplishments, everything that they've wanted to do, I think they've done. There's no more, you know, situations where they have to prove themselves, except for James Harden. You have Kyrie and KD who have won championships, so the burning deal is not about trying to win a championship. Trying to win a championship, so you know that's out of the that's out of the question for those guys. So I think like the Boston Celtics with Garnett, Pierce, and Ray Allen, where it's like, look, we've been in the league long enough, so we can kind of figure it out. You know, I think that's some of the things with Kyrie, James Harden, and uh, Kevin Durant. And all three of those guys have been uh, have been playing well. Irving, for the fact that he's missed some games and done some things that made some headlines. Is he playing? Why is he not playing? This, that, and the other. He's still on the cusp of having a 50-40-90 season, which means fit, shooting 50% from the field, 40% from the three-point line, and 90% from the free throw line. And he's averaging 28 points, 6 assists, and 5 rebounds per game and playing 39 games. Harden, before the hamstring injury, of course, he was playing like he was uh, the MVP. And I still think that he holds the key in terms of the Brooklyn Nets, whether they're going to win that championship or not, giving them the best opportunity to win that championship or not. But, you know, before the hamstring injury, he's been averaging 25 points, 8 rebounds, and 11 assists per game. Kevin Durant, First part of the season, he was playing like a legit MVP candidate uh, before going down or suffering a hamstring and deciding the uh, the next decision to uh, put him in mothballs somewhat. 
But um, this year, he's averaging 28 points, 7 rebounds, 5 assists per game, shooting 53% from the field in 22 games that he's played. So, you know, I'm, 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 I'm not worried in that respect in terms of, yeah, you know, normally would you like to have those three guys play 55, 60 games, get a boatload of minutes in them and, and find a little bit more groove to them? Yeah, sure, it'd be nice. But when you're speaking about players that are experienced and accomplished and intelligent as those three, I'm, I'm not going to say that's going to be the final nail in the coffin. So when they start talking about, you know, whose team is it? You know, we always bring that up with the super teams or with these teams that, have, that are loaded and they're talented. Well, well, whose team is it? Well, who's going to have the most responsibility for the success and failure of the team? First of all, I always giggle when I say whose team is it? Let me tell you something. When you're talking about football, baseball, basketball, hockey, football, American soccer, I don't give a damn. You know whose team it is? It's the owner's team. The guy who writes the checks. A player has never written a check. A coach has never written a check. A GM has never written a check. So I know that term. I hate that term. Whose team is it? For the Brooklyn Nets. You know whose team it is? It's Joe Sy's team. That's whose team it is. Now on the court, the most responsibility for the success and failure of the team is all three of them. All three of them are going to uh, share the blame if the Nets don't go ahead and win this championship, regardless of how great one of them might play. KD in the Eastern Conference Final, if they lose in six games to the Philadelphia 76ers, he might average 37 points a game. But if the 76ers beat them, he's still going to share some of the blame. Maybe not as much as, say, if James Harden goes in the tank or Kyrie Irving goes in the tank, but still, this is going to be a situation where all three of these guys wanted to play together. All three of these guys made it happen for for them to play together. So along with the success, which they would share, they're going to be sharing in the failure. So those questions about, you know, whose team it is and who's, you know, who's going to have the most responsibility and, who is, you know, who is the uh, person, who is the player that's going to be feeling the most pressure? And they all, all three of them are. You know, who's going to be responsible for taking the last shot of the game? When you're dealing with Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving and James Harden, whose responsibility it's going to be for taking the last shot? I got the answer for you. Who's ever playing the best during that during that game? Whoever has the best matchup during that time? If Kevin Durant is unstoppable and the Nets need a basket at the end of the game, they're going to be going to Kevin Durant. If James Harden is cooking, and he had the best matchup, and they need a basket at the end of the game, they're going to be going to James Harden. If Kyrie gets into one of them grooves, and he's out there and he's doing the thing, guess what? The game plan, the play that's going to be run up to get the final shot and all, Actuality is going to be Kyrie Irving. And I don't think James Harden and James, uh, excuse me, I don't think James Harden and Kevin Durant are going to be sitting in there brooding and complaining and pouting and going side-eyed and rolling eyes and looking at Steve Nash uh, weird if they draw up a play for Kyrie Irving, if Kyrie Irving is doing a thing. Just like I don't even think as, as quirky, as moody, as unique of a personality that Kyrie Irving is, I don't think Kyrie is going to pull a Scottie Pippen in the Game 3 Eastern Conference semifinals against the New York Knicks back in the day, I don't think he's going to pull a Scottie Pippen to sit on the bench if the play is drawn up for Kevin Durant or James Harden. If Kevin Durant and James Harden has the better matchup, or Kevin Durant and James Harden have been cooking that game, or if Kevin Durant is doing Kevin Durant things and James Harden is doing James Harden things, I don't think Kyrie is going to pull a Scottie Pippen and pout. I don't think, I, I don't think 
after the games that uh, Kyrie Irving is going to request any more personal time and walk away. I don't think Kyrie Irving is going to go in a funk. So I don't think the egos are going to be involved. I don't think the jealousy is going to be involved. All three of those guys have good chemistry off the court in terms of, uh, you know, the relationship that they have. So I don't think this is going to be that big of a deal. I don't think that's a question that uh, needs a whole lot of uh, worrying about in terms of, you know, oh my goodness, who's going to be that guy that's going to take the last shot? All three of those guys can hit the last shot. Also, all three of those guys have been that guy having the responsibility to take that last shot. But I also think there is a genuine respect level to say, hey, man, you know what? Cool. I'm going to have you take the last shot. And I also think also that the guy who has been assigned to take that last shot would be smart enough to know that if I am taking that last shot, but, you know, in the course of me taking that last shot, I see that Kyrie or James is in a position to get an even better shot that I'm mature enough, I'm smart enough, I'm good enough to uh, give it to them and they'll be able to do the thing. And it, not, wouldn't, and it wouldn't because I'm scared of the moment or anything like that. These guys, I think, in that situation would make the best basketball play. So because of that, I would have no qualms. I would have no ill feelings or worries about, oh my goodness, I mean, when it comes down to a close game, who's going to take over? I mean, that's not... That wouldn't be my ideal. Wendell's, Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. I mentioned before, speaking about the Brooklyn Nets, man, trying to disprove the basketball myth that offense sells tickets and defense wins championships, baby. They're saying, you know what? Not only does offense sell tickets, offense is also going to win championships. Now, everybody points to the fact that, hey, well, you know what? The Golden State Warriors ran a uh, really exciting, entertaining style of offense, and they won an NBA title. So what's, what's the precedent here? Well, you also have to remember that the Brooklyn Nets were also a very good defensive team during their run. When you had guys like Sean Livingston, when you had guys like Andre Iguodala, when you guys had guys like, um, um, wow, Draymond Green, those guys were high-level defensive players. Clay Thompson was another guy who was a very good defensive player. You had maybe, you know, so so that was a situation where, yeah, you, you had some guys who played defense. Mike Brown, the defensive coordinator on those teams, you know, set up the squads very well to play uh, very good defense. If you take a look at what the Brooklyn Nets have out there, none of those guys would be considered plus defenders. Even someone like DeAndre Jordan, who when he was with the uh, Los Angeles Clippers, was considered one of the better defensive centers and one of the guys who was in the running for defensive player of the year uh, back in the day. But he's no longer that player. So basically, this is going to be a deal where if the Brooklyn Nets are going to win a championship, they're going to do it by outscoring people. They're not going to be doing it by shutting down anybody. And also, you know, they're going to try to win a championship without a dominant big man. Has been done before with the... Golden State Warriors, but, you know, interesting that they're going to go ahead and do this with, uh, try to do this with three perimeter players. So we will see what happens as the season moves along. Can't wait for the playoffs to start. I was saying about, I don't know, about what, four or five weeks, somewhere around there, Memorial Day weekend. Um, that's when the playoffs are going to begin. So, yeah, Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. <sighs> The Nets playing the Philadelphia 76ers in the Eastern Conference Finals. Boy, I tell you what, man. They're going to be meeting a very motivated and very mean and very upset Joel Embiid. Everything is pointing to Nikola Jokic running away with the MVP. 
all the reports are saying that Nikola, Nikola Jokic is um, basically a cinch to win the MVP. A, because he's been great and he's deserving, but also B, if you take a look at all the contenders, for the most part, they've been injured. For the most part, they've met the multitude of games. LeBron, um, his injury, you know, forfeited his opportunity to win a uh, win an MVP again. Really, it started with Anthony Davis, which would hinder the win-loss record for the for the Lakers. So that portion of of a reason why you would vote for LeBron James went down the drain because they were hampered by what Anthony Davis, the Anthony Davis situation, the tree situation. But when Solomon Hill laid it on LeBron James' ankle, it basically took him out of the MVP race. Steph Curry has missed time, so he's out of the MVP race. Joel Embiid has missed time, so he's out of the MVP race. Um, James Harden has missed time, so he's out of the MVP race. The only player, really, of MVP uh, pedigree is uh, Nikola Jokic, and he's played every single game. So, <clears throat> the season like this, he's going to be the runaway uh, winner of the MVP. Well, Joel, I don't think, is going to be extremely happy about that. I think Joel has been very open about the fact of how much he wants to uh, win the MVP. I should mention also Giannis Adenikupo, another guy who uh, missed some games but has been playing at an MVP level. So uh, getting back to Joel, so Joel is going to be pretty mad. So not, not only is Joel, and I think that, again, he played on Wednesday against the Nets. Like, uh, he wanted to remind everybody why he should be the MVP of the league. So if the situation goes as continues and the 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 the, uh, the MVP race is Nikola Jokic by a wide margin, if the, if the gap continues to widen, I think Joel is going to get only angrier, angrier, meaner, and want to be more dominant. And we saw what an angry, dominant Joel Embiid looked like on Wednesday against the uh, Brooklyn Nets. If the man can stay relatively healthy, man, I tell you, Brooklyn's going to have some problems. Brooklyn's going to have some some real problems. Because, man, it's just the physical. In another podcast, I'll get into the NBA MVPs, you know, Joel, what's the difference between Joel, what's the difference between Joel and Giannis in... Um, in the in Jokic and those guys, but the thing about Embiid is that I mean, the, the man is so physical, the man is so big, the man is so strong that it's just a it's got to be an extremely daunting task to have to battle this man for the amount of minutes that he plays. You know, when Nikola Jokic, he'll beat you with his skill, he'll beat you with his intelligence, he'll beat you, you know, because of his all-around game. I mean, he'll throw up, you know, these quirky moves, he'll make these beautiful passes, he reads the game extremely well. I mean, there's there's different ways. And this is not to say that Joel isn't intelligent and smart on the basketball court, because he is. But Nikola Jokic is not going to use his physicality. Nikola Jokic is not going to beat you up physically during the game. If Jokic is going to be out there 38, 40 minutes, he's going to slice and dice you and make you feel bad about yourself as a basketball player because of his skill, because of his footwork, because of his fundamentals, because of his ability to play um, multiple facets of the game extremely well. So at the end of the game, you might not have been bruised and beat up by the physicality of Nikola Jokic, but you're going to be frustrated as hell and bewildered as hell because he's going to school you. He's going to school you with his passes. He's going to school you by being that point center, by initiating the offense, by getting everyone involved, by still being tough and still scoring underneath when they need to. Maybe not the brooding, 
barreling, dominating way. But ask Montrez Harrell how difficult it was to slow down Nikola Jokic last season in the playoffs. I mean, that's the type of player Jokic is. Embiid, Embiid is not is not the triple-double guy. Embiid is not going to sit there at the uh, top of the key extended and throw passes to cutters. He's not going to be that guy that's going to initiate the offense. He's not going to be that guy to grab the rebound and take it into the front court to initiate the offense. He's not going to be doing any of those things. But what he is going to do, he's going to put his big ass down on the block or he's going to put his back, big ass you know, on, on, the, uh, on the right block or the left block, turn and face from about 12 feet out, and he's going to look to punish you. He's going to look to dominate you. He's going to look to destroy you. He's going to look. He's going to uh, look to physically hurt you in a legal way. Not throwing elbows. Not doing any type of cheap shots. But he's going to go to the basket with strength, with power, with determination. And if you're going to get in his way, good luck to you. So you know, there's a whole different way of Joel Embiid and Nikola Jokic playing. And Jokic might be the best player in the league, but. Embiid might be the most dominant in terms of his physicality, the way that uh, he does his work. So, again, moving into the Eastern Conference Finals, if the Brooklyn Nets and the Philadelphia 76ers get there, it'll be an interesting contrast in terms of how the Nets, who are want to want to get up and down the court and shoot threes and isolate and, and do their thing off the dribble and those type of things, it'll be interesting to see that dynamic go up against someone like an Embiid who they're just going to throw the ball into, not just throw the ball into Embiid and let him do work, but that's going to be the focal point of that uh, offense for Philadelphia and have Tobias Harris and the other guys play off uh, what Embiid is doing in the low post trying to be dominant. And also, I'm looking forward to the matchup of Ben Simmons versus Kevin Durant in the Eastern Conference Final. What type of uh, matchup we're going to see there? Who's going to get the advantage in that situation. And when I say who's going to get the advantage, I'm not talking about Ben Simmons shutting down Kevin Durant. Nobody can shut down Kevin Durant. But how much of the defensive prowess that Simmons is going to unleash on Kevin Durant is going to affect not just his game on the offensive end, but also affect him on the defense. So all of those little deals I'm looking forward, looking forward to, hopefully, in the Eastern Conference Final. Now, I know that Boston might have something to say about that. Miami might have something to say about that. The Milwaukee Bucks might have something to say about that in terms of the Eastern Conference Finals already being set in stone with the Philadelphia 76ers going up against the Brooklyn Nets. But uh, we'll see. We'll see what happens. But the playoffs, Eastern Conference playoffs, being more clear, being more precise down the stretch, we'll see what happens. Get on the left lane And let's burn the peace Oh yeah Take the love exit Me and make right time Go on over To love and satisfaction Enjoy love Oh And we're riding And we're cruising down
Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Final segment of the podcast, saving something that I wanted to talk about last podcast, but I was like, you know what? I want to save it for this one. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to talk about WrestleMania 37, Raymond James Stadium in Tampa, Florida. Crowd of over 25,000 attended. Two-day event. Um, saw the second one. Missed the first day, so I missed the opportunity to watch the uh, SmackDown's Women's Championship between Bianca Belair and Sasha Banks. But history-making in the uh, situation as far as Belair and Banks is concerned. The first black women to compete for the Women's Championship and the fact that two black women closed the uh, show at an event such as WrestleMania, historic, fantastic. Um, Bianca Belair winning the championship over Sasha Banks. They've got themselves a superstar, man. They have The WWE has an absolute superstar in Bianca Belair. Charisma off the charts, very attractive, good look, athletic, strong, very, uh, you know, great great talker, great on the... Mr. Steel Cheats, she's, uh, she's got some good things, man. She's got some th- good things going. And one thing I will say about the uh, WWE, despite the fact of uh, some of the uh, storylines that they have, one thing that they are having a good uh, the good and plenty in is women, as far as the wrestlers are concerned. I mean, you know, I can see some programs down the road with her if Becky Lynch comes back, with Charlotte Flair. Uh, you know, I think Naomi, if they can resurrect her, I think that, uh, you know, they can have some good things with her. There's a lot of really talented female wrestlers moving forward. Of course, Ruby Riot. There's a lot of really good, talented uh, females who are wrestling where in the next, I don't know, year or two, they can really have some good programs with uh, Bianca Belair. Let's not forget about Sasha Banks. So some really good stuff happening down the road uh, as far as Bianca Belair is concerned. If, for instance, the um, company wants to uh, build Bill, uh, Belair so she can be, you know, the next, she can have that female impact that uh, John Cena, The Rock, or Steve Austin might have had in terms of for the uh, women's division. It was going to be Becky Lynch. Becky Lynch was on the road to uh, really doing some things, but, uh, you know, him, her and Seth Rollins, you know, created a baby. She got pregnant, so, you know, she had to be uh, doing that type of thing. But if she comes back, man, she's still red hot in terms of uh, who she is and what she does and what she's going to be going down. So if you got Bel Air, you know, I mean, can we be looking at WrestleMania next season, 38, next season, or next year, next April, in uh, Dallas, Texas, where you're going to be having the main event being Bianca Belair versus Becky Lynch. That would be something else. That would be something that would be great. So we'll see. We'll see. I mean, you know, Belair, though, has the chance, man. She she could be right up there with Trish Stratus and Lita and China and the fabulous Mula and Mae Young and Esther Johnson and Mildred Burke and Gail Kim in terms of females who have wrestled who have made an impact. Met Trish Stratus once, man. That's a very attractive young woman. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Of course, when we speak about wrestling, when we speak about character development, when we speak about storylines, when we speak about all those things, when we speak about you know the elevation of one's career, how far can they go? How popular can they be? We are speaking about now a new age, a new date in the WWE, which is concerned because unlike the metal, unlike the genius, unlike the direction 
that uh, Hulk Hogan went down, that The Rock went down, that Steve Austin went down, that John Cena went down, that Randy Macho Man Savage went down. All of these iconic Hall of Fame uh, type of performers. Kurt Angle went down. They were led. The bus toward Immortalville was driven by Vinnie Mac, Vince McMahon. But that was a Vince McMahon of someone who was in his 40s, someone in his 50s. Someone in his 60s. Vinny is, how old is Vince right now? Like 73, 74, 75? So, you know, if we're going to be taking someone, a talent like Bianca Belair, and the direction is going to be determined by Vince McMahon, how uh, how confident are you that Vinny's going to be doing the right thing? And how long is Vince going to be able to do this? When is the situation is going to come where Stephanie and Triple H are going to be the ones deciding which uh, programs are going to be happening, you know, which direction these wrestlers are going to be going. Now, everyone knows that Vince, as long as he's breathing, is never going to give up that control of the uh, organization, that control of the of the deal. I mean, there'll never be a time when Vince is, you know, his mind is where he's can still make the right decisions or he's going to make the decisions where he's going to pass that uh, responsibility off. The bottom line uh, ends with Vince McMahon, starts and ends with Vince McMahon. But if we're speaking about, you know, in the next couple of years, a Bel Air who is, you know, still in her prime and we've got a 77-year-old man and Vince McMahon deciding what the uh, direction of her career is going to be or what direction her career should be going, whether she should be turning fades, heel, what programs, what the uh, character going to be. What are we going to be talking about here? Are we going to have the situation where Bel Air is going to be unable to reach the levels of success that uh, some of the immortals, that some of the greats that I just mentioned before, both on the men's and women's side, that you're going to be able to reach that if we're going to be dealing with a much older Vincent McMahon. Don't mean to be an ageist here, but I'm just being real, just keeping it real. So, I mean, you know, we have a, we have a situation where, look, man, as I mentioned before, I just thought about this. The uh, WrestleMania next April at Jerry World main event bringing down the show Bel Air versus Becky Lynch. I mean, there's a possibility that they could maybe do a three three way with uh, Bel Air, Becky Lynch, and Ronda Rousey if she comes back. As much as I can't stand Ronda Rousey, I mean, she is a public figure. She will bring uh, attention. She will, uh, you know, bring that part. She will bring her spotlight to the. Excuse me to the um, to the uh, moment to that event. So we'll see what happens, man. But yeah, the next generation could produce some really, really good female wrestlers: Bel Air, Charlotte Flair, Becky Lynch, Alexa Bliss, Amber Moon, Shayna Baszler, Rhea Ripley. I mean, it's uh, it's there, it's there. I'm just hoping that um, Vinnie Mac will do the right thing. I really am. Bobby Lashley retaining his retaining his championship over Drew McIntyre beat Drew McIntyre. I think that's good. My uh, my fear was that it's like, man, you're gonna put the uh, belt on Bobby Lashley, and then uh, less than three months later, he's gonna be giving it up to uh, Drew McIntyre. I'm glad that uh, you know Lashley holds the belt. I think there's a lack of really quality performers and quality uh, bad guys in WWE to Raw to begin with. So. I think the situation, the continuation of the Drew Lashley um, program with Lashley chasing, excuse me, with uh, McIntyre chasing, I think that's the uh, think that's the best way to go. I, I don't know after McIntyre who you even would put with Lashley. 
in terms of, you know, if you were going to end this program. I, I don't, no one else has really moved to the forefront. I mean, you're not going to use Riddle. You're not going to use Sheamus. I don't know what you're going to do. I don't know if any other, you're not going to use Orton. You're not going to use The Fiend. I don't know what, I don't know exactly what you're going to do. So this was the correct direction, in my opinion, to go with this program in terms of Lashley being the champ and uh, Drew McIntyre chasing. So, mm, 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 mm. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Thinking about what could happen in terms of, um, in terms of uh, who could uh, be next after the program with McIntyre is over. Does Brock Lesnar come back for SummerSlam? And during the annual shakeup with the brand switch, could we get then Kevin Owens chasing against Brock, uh, excuse me, against uh, Bobby Lashley? Could it be someone like Big E? Could it be, I don't know, Cesaro starting to uh, have his program? I mean, could could Cesaro move from SmackDown? I know that there's possibilities that he might be the next program for Roman Reigns, but uh, don't know, don't know. But I'm very proud of Vinnie Mac, one of the, one of the uh, better WrestleManias or one of the better wrestling programs uh, over the last couple of days. I thought the Kevin Owens, Sami Zayn match was good. I thought the Big E Langston uh, versus, uh, oh my goodness, the Nigerian. Oh my goodness, Apollo Crews. I'm glad to see Apollo Crews finally getting a push. Apollo Crews has been one of the more talented performers for years that was being buried. I mean, for years and years, Apollo Crews was where Mustafa, Mustafa Ali is right now. In terms of the irrelevance, he, he was on the same level as Ricochet for for many many years. So I'm glad to see Apollo with the strap getting himself a little push there. And for Biggie, you know, to give up the Intercontinental t- Championship, now it's a situation where you know he can move on to uh, bigger and better things. Because I think Biggie is a guy who could be in the championship picture um, sooner rather than later. So all of those things are moving forward. Still don't know about Raw. Still don't know about this fiend bullshit. This is just nonsense. This is just awful. Can we please stop with the Alexa Bliss? Can we please just have Alexa Bliss go back to being a, a regular person, a regular wrestler, going after the belt, starting programs with wrestling is concerned? Can we at least do that? This fiend stuff I don't get. I've never get. It's ridiculous. Look, I understand that people liked it, so you move along with it, but it's just got to be absolutely ridiculous. What do you where does Bray Wyatt go with this after this? Where does Bray Wyatt what's his next invention? What's his next reincarnation in terms of the type of uh character he's gonna have? Can we have it at least someone who's halfway halfway normal? I mean the whole thing, that was the worst match of the entire WrestleMania. What the Fiend versus Randy Orton. So let me see. You you in a couple of pay-per-views ago. You set this guy, Randy Orton, set this guy on fire. Burned him alive. Went on the uh, airwaves, went on Raw, and was glee- gleefully, maniacally laughing and proud of himself that he burned, he murdered somebody by burning them alive. How that man wasn't arrested for murder is beyond me. I forgot to spend reality. But this man's up there gleefully talking about, I burned a human being even though we don't know, is he really human? But we burned somebody alive. And now he's shocked because he didn't murder him. And he came back. So this guy survived being lit on fire. So now all of a sudden, for the match at uh, 
for the match at WrestleMania, now all of a sudden he's going to lose with just a simple RKO? Huh? <laughs> what? What are we doing? Because he got distracted because Alexa Bliss came out in a jack-in-the-box and, uh, and uh, had goo or black whatever going down her face. That distracted the Fiend enough to Randy Orton hitting the RKO and pinning him one, two, three. Huh? What? What? Huh? It's just... It, when when you're dealing with stupidity like the supernatural and you're dealing with a character that's supposed to be, you know, like a Jason Voorhees type or I don't know what it is. I don't know what this, this whole deal is. But when you're dealing with this, it, it makes it hard because it's like, okay, if you're going to have this guy survive supernatural things, if you're going to make this guy impervious to pain, if you're going to have this guy be this type of character, then exactly how are we going to ever have him lose? I mean, we saw the same thing when, with The Fiend and Seth Rollins when they did their program. And they had their main event at one of the pay-per-views, and it was terrible. It was horrible. I think it ended in a no-disqualification and a match that was billed as a no-disqualification match. And it was like, okay, when you make the guy unbeatable, unless you're going to you know, bring a machete or a gun or a, a, a weapon of mass destruction, and we actually see this character being murdered... I mean being murdered. I mean actually have the guy take take a sledgehammer, put it down to his skull, and have his skull explode in front of everybody to say, finally, I did it. And then with his skull exploded, blood oozing out of his pores to get and hook the leg for the one, two, three. Unless we do something like that. Unless we actually see the... Wrestler put a bomb down the throat of the fiend, step back, have the bomb go off, have his body humanly combust live in front of everybody, and then he picks up one of the body parts, slams it down, and then pins one of the body parts for the one, two, three. I don't know how in the world can you realistically draw a program, write up a program where the fiend can be beaten because he looks unstoppable, he looks unbelievable, he looks unhuman like. And then he's going to go out to the RKO? Huh? What? Huh? So that means, it's just like, can we can we just please move on from this? Please. Please can we move on from this? But, uh, yeah. But overall, I thought uh, WrestleMania. WrestleMania was good. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. I want to end the uh, program and end this segment by speaking very quickly about the art of the wrestling promo. Because a couple of weeks ago, I heard one of the best wrestling entertainment pro promos I've heard in years. Now, I'm a guy who grew up on Rick Rude. I'm a guy who grew up on Mr. Perfect. I'm a guy who grew up on, ooh, yeah, Randy Macho Man Savage. I'm the man who really didn't follow Ric Flair too much, but uh, I followed him enough to know how great he was on the mic. And then, you know, moving on, I grew up on The Rock and Stone Cold and, and all, and all those guys, right? I mean, you know, back in the day, you had to be a great promo. Or if you didn't be a great promo, if you weren't great on the stick, then you had, you know, someone like a Bobby the Brain Heenan, Lou Albano, or someone like that to do all the talking for you. So, you know, one of the one of the deals in the wrestling business to get yourself over was to be able to talk on the mic. I mean, you had to grab that mic, get an idea, and go. And I think a lot of times, that's sort of like a lost art. So, you know, the, the, the legends like Ric Flair and Roddy Piper and Randy Savage and those guys, Arn Anderson, when he was doing his thing. I mean, those guys, you could tell them, look, we need 10 minutes. 
or we need five minutes. We need for you to get this point across, get that point across, and get these pro uh, points across, and emphasize this. Here's the mic. I don't know how you're going to get there, but go. And Ric Flair could take that mic, give me ten minutes, and uh, you know I'll make chicken salad out of chicken shit. Same thing with Roddy Piper when he was being interviewed by uh, Mean Gene Oakland. It was like, uh, Roddy, um, let me see here. Your match is coming up next with uh, Paul Orndorff. You got a match on the 18th of May at the Capitol Center against Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff. What are your thoughts and feelings about that? Boom. And Piper could take that mic and for the next five, six, seven minutes, deliver gems, deliver jewels. That was the uh, pro wrestling business. That's what I grew up on. Macho Man Savage versus Tito Santana. You know, go ahead and give me four or five minutes and then we'll bring in Elizabeth and you can give your, hey, what did I tell you here? Did I tell you to come in and this, that, and the other? Go iron my robe, this, that, and the other. But, you know, for five minutes, go ahead and talk about what you're going to be doing to Tito Santana and how you're going to be defending your intercontinental uh, belt. Of course, you had Hulk Hogan with the, you know what, Mean Gene. Well, let me tell you something, Mean Gene. So, you know, these guys had to be able to be great on the mic. And as I mentioned before, if they weren't, they bring in a Bobby the Brain Heenan to do the talking for them. But, uh, so that's one of the reasons why I was such a huge wrestling fan, and that's one of the reasons why I still watch wrestling, because I enjoy the art of a really good promo. Well, one of the guys right now, the you know, the guy who I think is at the top of the list Right now, and you have some good ones from Roman Reigns, his new character, I think, that uh, he's very good on the stick now. Uh, MVP has always been great on the stick. Daniel Bryan, I mean, he's just good at everything. Uh, Samoa Joe, I mean, while he was uh, released from the WWE, you know, this week, I think that he's one of the underrated all-time greats. I mean, listen to this awesome promo that uh, Joe gave uh, a little while ago. Gold, absolute pure gold. By, uh, by Joe and what he's putting down. Everybody out here talking about waiting in lines, asking for permission. I ain't asking for permission. I came to put a champion to sleep. And I suggest all four of you get out of my way. And trust me, Randy, I know I need to size up with you. And when I defang the Viper, trust me, ain't gonna come from nowhere. Jeff, I already put you out. I don't even know why you're out here right now. Keep on talking. Hey, 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 do me a favor. Why don't you act like this is an AA meeting and you shut your mouth while I'm sharing with the group. And Mustafa, you out here, a boy among men. And I'm going to tell you what. You got lucky at the Rumble, so I know you're going to come out here and run your mouth about how bad you are. But let me leave you a little bit of a reality check. You see, Mustafa, you said that my eyes don't lie. Well, your eyes don't lie either, because last week, they were closed real tight when I put your simple ass to sleep. And AJ, hey man, be honest with me. How's our old girl Wendy doing? Samoa Joe, the underrated Samoa Joe on the mic. Edge is great on the mic. Kevin Owens is great on the mic. Taz is great on the mic. MJF is great on the mic. Cody Rhodes is great on the mic. So the art of picking up the microphone and getting your message across, doing it in an entertaining way, it's uh, it's an art form. It's really a great art form. Something, again, that I very much enjoy. And the best on the mic currently right now is Chris Jericho and Paul Heyman. Probably the two, if you had, again, 
look, you know, we need to uh, hold the audience's attention. You need to go ahead and make these points, and you need to do it for 10 minutes. Who am I going to give the mic to? I'm going to give it to Paul Heyman, and I'm going to give it to uh, Chris Jericho. Or I'm going to give it to my favorite wrestler right now currently, Kenny Omega. Omega's another guy who uh, he can do it all. If you take a look at in-ring skills, telling the story, speaking on the mic, all of those things, to me, even more than Jericho, who, you know, at his age is still out there wrestling and doing a pretty good job at it for someone his age. But just in terms of who you can work with, putting on a good match, the psychology of the match, getting the crowd into it, building the match, telling the story of the match before the match starts, being on the mic, to me, the best out there right now all around is uh, Kenny Omega. And the uh, heel Kenny Omega is great. Absolutely love it. Don Callis, another guy who's great on the mic. Young Bucks, their heel turn. We'll see what takes with that. But, uh, you know, right now, Kenny Omega is my man. But uh, I want to end the podcast with this. I want to end the podcast, as I mentioned before, with one of the best promos I heard. I've heard in a while. And it's Chris Jericho a couple of weeks ago on uh, AEW Dynamite. And if you don't know the storyline, very quickly, let me enlighten you. What happened was they are a part of this faction called the Inner Circle. And they had recruited MJF into the inner circle. And what happened was MJF, who's the heel, Chris Jericho and those guys were the heel. But the breakup was coming, so Jericho and that group was going to be moving to a face. Well, they got attacked by MJF, who outsmarted them by the lights going dark. Just at about the time when the inner circle found out that MJF was trying to play them. Just before the beatdown with MJF, as he was cornered in the ring, the lights went out, and all of a sudden, a new faction for MJF appeared called the Pinnacle. And they gave the inner circle, Sammy Grovana and Jake Hager, and those guys gave them the beatdown of their lives, took them off television for about a month to reset the storyline and put it into the new direction. So, that next week or four weeks later, the inner circle came in and they attacked. Uh, the Pinnacle and MJF and, uh, and and those guys and this, that, and the other. So the turn was complete for the Inner Circle and Jericho and those guys from being a heel to now being baby faces, being good guys, and MJF's, MJF's uh, squad being, you know, the heels. So Jericho cut this awesome, awesome promo, and it was great. It was fantastic. It was uh, entertaining. It wasn't hokey. It was it was great, and uh, I'm going to end it with this. I'm going to end my program with that. So, you know, we're going to play that, hit the music, and then hope everybody has a great day. Hope everybody has a hope everybody does what they need to do to uh, make this place a better place to be. Remember, please, ladies and gentlemen, love, peace, happiness, no more shooting, understanding, learning from each other, seeing what we can do to help the younger generation to move this society in the direction that it needs to be in. For my generation, for the generation before me, for even the generation after me, it might be too late to make any type of really constructive change in the society toward harmony, toward unity, toward togetherness, toward um, um, you know love and peace, which we want it to be. But for the younger, younger, younger generation who's going to be leading this country, setting the rules, setting the, setting the moral, setting the character of this country, of this world, when I'm long gone, Let's uh, make sure that uh, we go ahead and we educate them so when they get to be in the responsibility of owning this country, shaping this country, dealing with this world that we live in, that uh, they have the correct tools to do so. 
Let's see what we can do there. All right, so Chris Jericho, my man, Le Champion, get it on, and I'll see y'all next time. We are the inner circle, and we are back in black, baby. And it was only one short month ago when we were in this ring and given the beatdown of a lifetime by the pineapple, the pinnacle, and that beatdown taught us a lot. It gave us hospital stays, it gave us stitches, but most importantly, it gave us a wake-up call. It made us realize we had made a lot of bad decisions over the previous six months. Decisions that hurt a lot of people, insulted a lot of people, and for that we apologize to everybody, including all of you. But those decisions were caused by MJF. My jerk-off friend. And you see, my jerk-off friend says he outsmarted us because he's much more intelligent than me. And he's right, I'm not smart at certain things. High school chemistry, I was terrible. My teacher even asked me after I failed another test, are you on dope? That's an exact quote. I wasn't, I just wasn't very smart in chemistry. Were you smart in chemistry? No, exactly, who is? But what I am smart in is pro wrestling, the psychology and the business of pro wrestling. And that's why I brought MJF, my jerk-off friend, into the inner circle. It wasn't to take him under my wing. It was to keep him under my thumb. Because I know how dangerous my jerk-off friend is. I know how good he is. I know how much personality and potential he has. And I wanted to use him for every ounce of his being and suck all of his life out into the inner circle. And we had it perfectly planned. We knew he would eventually figure it out and he'd show his true colors and we were ready to kick his ass. But what we didn't think about is that he would be one step ahead of us. And we got outsmarted. Outsmarted by a man who can do everything. Except for apparently put on a spray tan. Because a few weeks ago, when he was in this ring, he was oranger than Cassidy with more streaks than the bottom of that toilet bowl that I shoved his face into last week. I can't wait for the chance to swirly when he comes back out here in front of you guys. You see, MJF is only 25 years old. Think about that. When I was 25, I was still having wet dreams, but yet here he is, 25 years old, at the pinnacle of the pro wrestling business. You see what I did there? But here's the thing. MJF, you consider yourself to be a fine wine. You said you're gonna get better with age, but the problem is you don't wanna wait for the age. You want it now. You want to be better than the GOAT now. You want to be better than Chris Jericho now. Well, those are some big, big shoes to fill, my man. You got to go smaller. Take baby steps. Be better than Peter Avalon. Be better than Michael Nakazawa. Be better than that stupid Burberry scarf you've been wearing for a few years. It's tired, it's old, it's stale, and it sucks. Time to change it up, and besides, I was rocking the scarf gimmick five years ago, and if you're so much superior than me, why are you stealing my man? That's lame. But 
I got an old clipboard in the back. If you want to take that and add it to the list of gimmicks that you stole from Le Champion, go for it. You see, you're not as good as you think you are, Max. You believe your own hype. I see you listening to the critics. I see you listening to the fans online. Oh my gosh, you would beeline to the back after every match and promo you ever had to check how people thought you did. You know what? We call that in the pro wrestling business being a mark. But I'm gonna change that to call it being a max because you, my friend, are a max for yourself. And the true issue is this, Max, you know, you'll never, ever be better than Chris Jericho. You'll never be better than me, and you know it. And that's causing the fine wine in your brain to ferment and sour, which is oh, so apropos, because look at the sour men you've aligned yourself with, my jerk-off friend. Let's talk about Telly Blanchard, shall we? You said he's the greatest mind in pro wrestling history. Really? Seriously? He's really nothing more than the third string member of the Four Horsemen, right? Ranking somewhere between uh, uh, Ole Anderson and Paul Roma. Then you got FDR, maybe one of the greatest tag teams in the world today, but they're completely interchangeable. I can't tell which one is which. They're like AEW's version of the Jonas Brothers in that I know they're good, I know they make money, but I don't know their names. Are you Dax? Are you Cash? Are you Axe? Are you Smash? Are you Axel? Are you Slash? I don't know! And then of course there's Spears, Sean Spears. He's got such a great upside, they say. I've never seen it. The only thing I've seen from Spears is his number on my phone when he called me after getting fired from the Fed 10 years ago, asking for advice. You know, aligning yourself with my jerk-off friend, Sean Spears, is about as good a decision as rocking a blonde mohawk in 2021.